Hey, good afternoon. Hey, Eric. Hey, man. How are you? Doing well. How are you all doing? Doing good. Doing good. My name is Brian. Hi, Brian. I'm Eric. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, Eric. All right. Well, um, interesting. Uh, I was just texting with uh, Marie before this. It's it's all all the way around. Interesting times. You know, uh, are you guys all teaching this semester? Yep. Are you all? Yep. Uh, adjuncts full-time what's what's everybody's i know i know marie's situation we've been talking but what about each of you i'm a graduate assistant nice nice at u of a yeah yeah, yeah. okay so here's the thing like I, I work at uaccm the community college i feel like i'm probably doing um Similar stuff as you guys in the classroom, but just for some reason getting paid more. You guys are probably doing way cooler shit than me. I know Marie is. So um, I like I, I teach at a community college, but it's all intro stuff. So like literally this like podcast such as these are uh, part of the way that I get out and around and do things, talk about things I want to talk about. So I appreciate you guys coming on. I, we appreciate you hosting us um, and and seeing how the conversation goes. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to come on. So um, I was just, you know, uh, it's, uh, we're gonna be talking about the state flag. I just brought this up. I teach Arkansas history introduction course. And uh, it is like one of the first pictures uh, on my slideshow is the state flag. And um, I had like, when I, I pulled up, I had a, a student, a person of color, and I, I made some mentions about us going to do this podcast and I was going to, you know, share it with him and stuff. And he was like, wait, wait a second. Uh, you, are you saying that star is that? And I was, it, and what's funny is the student has had me in class before and like, we just haven't, haven't had that conversation yet. And he was like, like, and really in my personal experience, that's the first time that I had a student that is a person of color in my class that got their mind blown and was like, well, that's bullshit. Like, and uh, so like, that's super real experience for me that just happened last week. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but it is, it's uncomfortable. I hate, I hate having to tell that story. I usually tell it like when we get to the civil war, it just came up on the, on the front end of class this time, you know? Uh, yeah, that you know the the typical response uh, when you bring up the state flag is that nobody knows uh, what this part represents. But you know, also you know what nobody seems to understand or or know, and and I mean, and probably rightfully so. I mean, how often during the day do you think about a state flag? But the Arkansas flag is you know, rich with symbolism anyway, and I think what's most most interesting about it is that all of the other symbolism you know, was put there in 1913. And it's 10 years later that the uh, Confederate commemoration is added. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even the original design. It wasn't the original intent, probably. Um, the woman who designed the flag in the state competition, Willie Hawker, she was a member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So, you know, that could explain uh, you know, some of the design choice, but she didn't put, you know, that, that Confederate commemoration there herself. Um, that comes 10 years later when the, the second iteration of the KKK is a 
you know, fairly powerful national organization. Mm. So what, um, that, that's, that's interesting. So like just telling this story to people that have never heard it, like, uh, so can you explain real quick, one of you, like the basic history of our flag, what the symbols are um, for people? Because I, I assume that I will have people in my audience listening to this that are not even from Arkansas. So, um, but in that we're one of five state flags that have had symbolism added after the fact, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, what could you tell us a little bit about just like the history of our flag? Um, you want me to, Marie, Eric, you want me to do that? Go for it. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so until 1913, we did not have a state flag. Uh, the federal government built a, built a new ship, the USS Arkansas, the United Daughters, um, or no, excuse me, the, the Daughters of the, of the Revolution here in Arkansas, uh, their chapter, wanted to give that, that battleship an Arkansas flag. It was named after the state. So they go to the Secretary of State and say, hey, you know, uh, we want to give a state flag to this battleship. The Secretary of State essentially says, well, I mean, you could, but we don't have one. So this uh, initiates um, an, an effort to, you know, to create a flag. So there's a statewide competition. Uh, there's a board put together. Ultimately, a woman from um, Jefferson County named Willie Hawker has the winning design. So the first design doesn't even have the word Arkansas on it. Um, it is, the, it, it looked how the, how the, flag looks today, except it didn't have Arkansas on it, and it had three blue stars that went across the middle. That flag goes to committee. Um, as, a, as one of our current state senators, uh, Greg Letting, put it, committees often make things worse. That committee put the word Arkansas on it. Now, I had somebody on Twitter tell me that that was the equivalent of tattooing your name to your face. That is just kind of ridiculous. So that gives Great us... Point. So, so that gives us Arkansas across the state flag with uh, three blue stars, uh, two below Arkansas, one above it. Uh, the other symbolism surrounding the flag, so a lot of times it comes up and they say, well, you know, this flag is very reminiscent of the Confederate battle flag. And, and in terms of color and scheme and all that, it absolutely is. The, the diamond shape itself is supposed to represent Arkansas as a diamond-bearing state, uh, Murfreesboro. The 25 white stars going around that are supposed to represent the fact that Arkansas was the 25th state added to the Union. Um, on each corner, the two white stars are supposed to mirror each other to represent Arkansas uh, and Michigan being led in at roughly the same time, not quite the same time, but often uh, and we teach that as sort of a sister, a sister statehood kind of coming in together as part of the, um, the Missouri Compromise, uh, one free, one slave state. And then those three blue stars represent nations that have controlled the territory of Arkansas. So France, Spain, and the United States. And then we have that flag for a decade. In 1923, the state legislator adds the Confederate star then the year later, they reorient those stars so that there's only one blue star above the word Arkansas, and that is to commemorate the Confederacy. So, and what is the argument made for that? Like, well, it's the most recent, right? Or is it? Is that trying to explain? Do they try to explain that away at any point that where like the choice is being made to put that star at the top? 
so the, the argument, so what, when they first added the fourth star, there's two on top, two on bottom, above and below the word Arkansas. In 1924, the year later when they reorient it, their argument is that, or was, that by adding that fourth star, it upset Willie Hawker's original symmetry. So they wanted to fix her symmetry. Feelings. Um, they do not address, you know, uh, directly that they're putting the Confederate star above the United States star, which I think is important. Um, you know, this is the second iteration of the KKK was hyper obsessed with 100% Americanism, right? But the U.S. star was still subjugated to the Confederate star in their in their ultimate design choice, and and that's where it remains. <sighs> yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so where do you guys come into this story? Why, like, why are we podcasting about this? Like, I, I, so there's, there's an effort to change some of this and I kind of feel like it's, it's a, it's, it's the, the most that can be done perhaps, right. Is to like, uh, let's update the symbolism is, is basically what I understand is the, most compromising move that can be made at this time, sadly. Right. Right. So like, what is, what does that look like? What are, you know, this is a very, I was telling Marie before this, we're texting, like there's a, a, a rally in my hometown tomorrow. There's uh, this is uh, coming on. This podcast is coming on the heels of uh, the Confederate statue being taken out of Bentonville. Right. right. Uh, so, this is a really interesting time where a lot of this stuff is coming to the forefront, but can you explain a little bit about the current push to update the symbolism and what, where, where that is a compromise uh, that, that is having to be struck because of certain people being upset about it or groups rather? Uh, yeah, I, I can try. And then um, Marie and Eric can, can I think, I, I think can contextualize why this is important much better than I can. Um, but I, I can tell you what, what the current events are. So in, in March of last year, 2019, uh, the House Minority Leader, uh, a Democrat, Charles Blake from Pulaski County, uh, introduced a bill very late. It's my understanding anyway, that it was very late in the legislative session when he introduced the bill. And the bill called for um, a couple of things. And that was um, replacing the Confederate star with a U.S. star and making the current U.S. star uh, a, a commemoration of the Native American tribes that have uh, had jurisdiction over the Arkansas Territory. And, 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 that, and that is in line with the theme of the flag. The blue stars of France and Spain, so Native Americans, makes you know, perfect historical sense, right? Um, my understanding, you know, that bill never left committee. Um, there, there's kind, of, there kind of a late push for it. It never left committee, so it, it died, essentially. Uh, Charles Blake is no longer um, in the Arkansas House. He is the chief of staff to the Arkansas mayor now. Um, so what, what's interesting, I think, about the bill is that it was bipartisan. It was written by a Democrat. It had a Democrat co-sponsor, and then it had um, two Republican co-sponsors, and one each from the House and the Senate. And, and that's very, I think that's very, very important. I think that's maybe the most important thing about this bill, this effort, this podcast, the whole endeavor is that 
this should not really be a political issue. This is, this is an educational issue. And to kind of, to kind of uh, parrot what the governor, what Governor Hutchinson said back in 2016, when Arkansas decoupled Robert E. Lee Day from MLK Day, Hutchinson said in an interview, you know, this was an educational opportunity. We sat down at a table. We learned a lot from each other. And that, and I'm paraphrasing, as far as I'm concerned, this was an educational bill. And that's how I view this, is it's educational. Uh, last year, um, as, you know, when this was introduced, the governor did publicly support it. Um, there were a couple of news interviews where he said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm on board with this. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, he, he views something like this as educational as well. And that's how I view it. And that's really how I think we should, you know, this should be tackled is that what we're trying to do is not just say, hey, look, we have this commemoration to the Confederacy and that's, you know, that's wrong. We should change it, um, you know, to, you know, you know to, to still a current talking point, we should can it. No, 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 no. That's not what we're trying to do. You know, it, everybody here is interested in accurate history and, 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 so I do, I do mostly the Cold War. I don't really do this era. I've had to do a lot of catch up on information to get my head around this, which is why, you know, Marie and Eric are part of this project. This is more their area. And this educational initiative, you know, we can't just tell people, hey, we got we to get rid of the star or, or rename it or do whatever with it, but they have to understand why. And I, I think, you know, to do that, people have to explain, you know, why was the Civil War actually fought? You know, spoiler alert, it was not states' rights, unless we're talking about a state's rights to own slaves. You know, what happened, you know, with Reconstruction? And then what happened after? Why was the, the, the second version of the Klan, you know, able to exist? What was it channeling? You know, the Klan didn't spring out of nothing. There were American traditions and there were built-in American social systems that allowed the second KKK to to come into existence and then to take those pre-existing things and put them into overdrive and carry them forward. Um, so I don't know where to go from, from that part of the conversation, but you know, if you want to back up to the civil war and the reconstruction, um, you know, Marie and Eric, I think, can really kind of put this into context for us. Yeah. So if you, um, exactly what Will said about the education side of this, that's what brought the three of us together is we're, for one, we're all three native Arkansans. We're all historians. Um, we all come from slightly different parts of the state, although Eric and I are both, Eric's from Little Rock and you know, I'm from Russellville. So a kind of same part of the state there. Um, but we wanted to bring this to people as uh, educators, not um, affiliated with any kind of political ideas at all. So what we've been doing is just telling people about the history of the state in the Civil War and in Reconstruction and about the second iteration of the Klan. So um, I believe that if Arkansans realize, and I think we all believe this, that if Arkansans really understand how bad the Confederacy was for Arkansas, how um, how bad the first clan was for Arkansas, then they will realize that that star is um, not only not necessary, but it's offensive um, as an Arkansan. And so like um, the Confederacy, 
when Arkansas joined the Confederacy, the Confederacy never sent troops to send a large a group of troops to defend the state from the Union. The Union took back the Confederacy from um, from Confederate control. They they invaded Northwest Arkansas. The Union did very early on in the war. Um, all Confederate troops were pulled from Arkansas very early on in the war, and Arkansans joined the Confederacy, but they were largely left to their own devices throughout the war. Um, the Confederacy did um, this taxing kind in Arkansas where they, they took Arkansan supplies that they needed to survive to send out of state. So yeah, maybe our Arkansas was technically part of the Confederacy, but in no way did the Confederacy help Arkansas. It hurt, it actively hurt Arkansans throughout um, its history. And so there is no reason whatsoever to honor the Confederacy on our flag. And then that doesn't even, yeah, go ahead, Eric. No, no, I'm, I'm definitely not gonna cut you off. I want to continue on because you're speaking the truth. Um, that, that doesn't even get into reconstruction when you have the first iteration of the Klan in Arkansas. And the first iteration of the Klan is far less organized than the second iteration. Um, the first iteration of the Klan is also extremely violent. So the whole purpose of the first iteration of the Klan is to stop Black Arkansans from voting, to stop Black Americans in general um, from voting or being having their new constitutional rights protected. And so the, the, the second iteration of the Klan, which is what Will will um, talk about or bring into the conversation, it is much, um, it's equal opportunity hate there where the first iteration of the Klan is much more violent, overtly violent and racist, um, and more geared to specifically hurting African-Americans, where the second iteration of the Klan is going to be a national organization um, who hates anyone who is not a white Protestant American. Um, and the, during Reconstruction, the governor of Arkansas fights the Klan, calls up an Arkansas militia to put down the Klan. He is, um, President Grant offers his congratulations to Governor Clayton during Reconstruction for how well he handles the Klan, which is something that, that President Grant does as well. And that's not part of the way that um, Arkansans usually remember their history. They don't remember the fact that um, the Klan was something that had to be put down, that it had to be fought because it was actively hurting Arkansans. Uh, they don't remember the history of the, the accurate history of the Confederacy. And uh, after Reconstruction comes to an end and you have these redeemers reclaim control of the state or so-called redeemers as they call themselves with these Southern Democrats that uh, reclaim control of the state, they push out um, Republicans and they push out this, uh, any kind of progress that's going to go, uh, come into play. And then that's when you have Jim Crow. Yeah, and that's where, that's where Eric can pick up. Um, yeah, well, um, that's a great segue, um, and myself, um, I study, um, U.S. history, um, race, and I study African history, but it's, these are the, the conversations that I'm teaching in my class currently, um, today, uh, we were talking about, um, I'll get to the back end, but just to piggyback on what Marie was, um, alluding to about Will's, uh, part of the conversation is, 
um, as we get towards that part of the, the 20th century, um, we look at questions of immigration and urbanization began to increase these anxieties um, that would expand the focus of groups like the Klan towards this 100% Americanism approach. Um, but when we uh, scale it back towards the, the era of the redemption, um, Marie highlighted a, an important point. And as I'm listening to the comments, um, um, I think it's important to highlight the, the, the reason why Arkansans and Americans in general have this misremembrance about the Confederacy and this misremembrance about this era of our history is because of the, um, the deliberate attempt to change this narrative and change this memory um, during the era of the, the lost cause mythology. And it's important to highlight what Will stated about the flag, in my opinion, about where the stars are represented. Um, initially, the, the Confederate star was not highlighted above the state name, but this was changed during this era of the lost cause to accomplish many goals. Of course, to reassert white supremacy within this country, but also to reconcile the country uh, north and south from its grievances during the Civil War. Um, these, these debates over the, the institution of slavery were so long held that the country spent so much time divided over the future of, of America um, regarding the institution of slavery and regarding questions of race that it took time to actually bring America back together again. And one of the reasons that it took so much time was during this era of reconstruction, there was black progress and that black progress was a threat to the reconciliation of America. And this black progress is what the North and the South came together around to limit. Um, during this era of the redemption, you saw regressions in, in voter, not only in, um, in, in voter advances, but also just in, in protections of basic civil rights. You saw the North and the South come together and reconcile over this concept of white supremacy. And during this era is when the, the the narrative about the Civil War, about why the Civil War was fought, about um, the, the mythology of these Confederate uh, generals and how um, valiant the Confederate soldiers fought against the Union. All of these, um, all of this mythology was created and embedded into the Southern, um, the Southern identity and into Arkansas's identity during this time, even into the state flag. And so that's why it's important to me to highlight the symbology of it or the symbolism of it because um, prior to this lost cause era, there was no, there was no calculated effort to change this narrative, right? But the onset of black progress during the reconstruction is what prompted this desire to change the narrative about the, um, um, not only the civil war itself, but how bad Reconstruction actually was for the South and for America, how bad black progress was for the South and for America. And these are the, these are the conditions that allow for this lost cause narrative to come in and actually reorient not only Southern, um, Southern remembrances of the Civil War, but also America's remembrance of this time. Because again, this, this lost cause era was about reconciliation between the North and the South around white supremacy. And so 
the the flag itself, the conversation itself is important because of the symbolism and the history the history of the symbolism. Um and I'll just be frank, as I as we've done these talks before, you know, I'm I'm from Little Rock, I'm an Arkansan. Um I've learned these things and relearned the 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 real meaning of these histories um through education. But in my day-to-day life, the Arkansas State flag doesn't really mean anything to me. Changing the Arkansas flag or the history of the Arkansas flag doesn't mean anything to me, more so than taking that Confederate statue down in Benville. I don't spend a lot of time in Benville. So it doesn't really matter to me like that. However, the reason that we misremember these things is important. The reason that we don't understand this history and we don't understand how these conversations about the state flag are tied to conversations about race and even conversations um, that we're having currently about um, race and history in America. These things are important because we don't remember them due to how history has been used and how history has been manipulated. And in going into this era, and I'll just leave it for Will to pick up, um, and going to this era of 100% Americanism coming out of um, you know, the, the early 20th century, even going into and coming out of World War I, this influx of, of, of peoples from around the world, not only from, from Europe, but from Asia, and this domestic migration from, from Black people leaving out of the South and coming into these urban areas in the North, these created anxieties that would expand the, the, the scope of nationalist groups like the Ku Klux Klan during this time and allow for this conversation about 100% Americanism to not only focus on Black people in this country, but also other people like uh, Jews, Catholics, you know, um, all of these other demographics that the KKK, the second iteration of the KKK will come to to, to verbalize and target. Uh, hey, well, so you mentioned the DAR earlier, right? So, yeah. One thing like that is fascinating, fascinating to me. So I mentioned um, like these tensions are playing out uh, amongst people I grew up with. I grew up, uh, grew up in Johnson County, Arkansas, in which in the 80s, they were like, hey, let's call Johnson County Westside uh, the Rebels. Let's make our mascot the Rebels and can do conf-. So it's just a reoccurring thing. And it, what has frustrated me teaching these topics is uh, how many people I grew up around, grew up with, uh, alongside people in my communities, uh, whether that is where I own a business now in the River Valley in Russellville or where I come from, they, they take this information very hostile, right? And it, do you think, like, when I talk with people, like, yes, the DAR, uh, they asked me to write an essay to, it seems like these are entrenched in our elementary schools and that it's just like a systemic level to where it's easily, it's easy to influence the education through these groups. You know, DAR sounds a lot better than the, than the United Daughters of the Confederacy too, but mm-hmm. in reading about them, I mean, I, I, I'm new to this topic, honestly, myself, sadly, is like, well, what's the difference? Like, that's kind of what I keep coming up with. And I don't know, other than I'm like, should I not say things? Because there's a big DAR group right across the river. And also a Confederate monument being held up. And that's a big uh, point that we don't like to talk about when I bring it up to a lot of people. I mean, even in an educational sense, people just get hostile right now. Uh, And it's just like, uh, well, hey, would you like to hear some of the history? Just like, I'm not trying to argue with you. But how does it, 
how does it become this like it just keeps the narrative keeps getting shifted back to what we're saying like it's frustrating for me right it's like every time i bring it up to somebody that's not an academic they've grown up and like been taught this history even in the 80s my aunt in eighth grade was at that school that the consolidation took place at and it just seems like it's reoccurring all the time is it these groups is it the dar like you know i i, if I, I yeah, eric yeah eric please i'll offer a quick opinion on it it's the entire system itself it's the education system it's the people who make the textbooks it's the people who write the curriculums it's the people who administer the schools it's the people who teach it's how they've been how these teachers have been taught by academia because even in academia this lost cause mythology was taught and is still taught in many places uh, up until this day um so by various professors and, and as institutions of higher learning so when you talk about systemic you have to look at the entirety of the education process and, and understand how at every single touch point of it, um, this, this, this recreation of the narrative um, is, is effectively changing people's ideas about the truth. It has already changed people's concept of whatever truth is. And so when you share this new information, it's not new information, when you share this not nine uh, half half told information. When you tell this full truth to them, it's jarring to them mm -hmm. because of how they've been educated about this history. And they often uh, feel the need to defend the way that they've been taught about this because of how systemic that education has been. They've learned it at every single level of the process. So when you share this information with them, it's jarring. Right. And they, they want to believe that they're intelligent people, and maybe they are. Maybe they absolutely are. And so when you say, no, you've learned this wrong, like this, this is just not the way it was, they do get more defensive. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And I also think that I don't know enough about the Daughters of the American Revolution. I know it's a heritage organization and that there's a lot of overlap between that and the UDC, but the UDC had a children's wing of the organization that was meant to indoctrinate children with their version of Confederate history, which was the lost cause. And they knew the UDC understood that if you did not teach children your version of history, then you would lose it forever. And so they, they spent a lot more time talking about the Civil War and Reconstruction and in the years after the Reconstruction, they spent a lot more time talking to their children about those things than other American families did. And so their children grew up learning that history. These are more elite members of society in general, wealthier members of society in general, so they already have more power. They grow up learning that history. They teach their children that history and the UDC's plan to indoctrinate Americans' children or at least the South's children with this history is actually very successful. I mean, that's what we're seeing now. Yeah, it, it is. I've so I, I made, I think, 45 notes in the last three minutes. So there, there are tons of directions I think this conversation can go. I, I know. I'm sorry if I went all over the place on that last <laughs> rant. But it's like, I'm thinking, like, my, I just drank a coffee, and you guys are talking, and I'm like, oh, oh. Anyway, so go ahead, Will. Sorry to cut you off. but Let's just see how this comes out and which order it comes out in and if it's coherent when, it, when, when we get there. So 
uh, Eric Marie might be able to correct me on this. I believe it was Gary Nash in the 1990s that was asked to be on a like federal level panel to figure out like a, a history curriculum for the United States. I, I believe I believe that that's true. I might be wrong. I think it was Gary Nash. I um, think so. I what? I think so. Yeah, I think it was Nash. Um, I could go back and look at my old comprehensive exam answers, but I don't want to read those ever again. So I we're just going to say. Gary Nash. Um, so Nash and this panel of experts are put together in the 1990s. They're going to sort of reconfigure how we teach American history, teach a more inclusive version. So, you know, here are the natives and here's the black experience and the Asian experience and so on and so forth. Right. Women. So once that curriculum was written and they put it forth to, to, to a panel, to a, I guess a government panel, um, they were basically told no, because their version of history did not deify the founders. And, and, and that, that represents our entire problem with teaching history is that people don't like nuance. And nuance is oftentimes, uh, you, you know, insulting to people. And it's not supposed to be. You know, it, it's, it's, there's, there's this huge bridge between people who study history professionally and then those who say, oh, Oh, like I love history, oh, and by that they mean you know they like to watch the History Channel. You know, there, there's a difference, right? So, and, and it's hard to bridge that gap. And when we try to bridge it, it comes off as very condescending, even though it's not supposed to. But you no, know, and I have no idea if this is true. But this is this is how I this is kind of how I see it. When I teach um, the survey to US two, I spend a couple of classes. They have to read a book on uh, Japanese internment in World War II. I just talked about that today. And, and, you know, there, there were two of those internment camps here in Arkansas. But, you know, a lot of the feedback I always get from students is nobody ever taught us this. Why didn't they? Well, my, my, my take, it was never taught to you because World War II was supposed to be a hero's journey, right? It is this heroic narrative. You've got D-Day and you've got the Battle of the Coral Sea and you've got island hopping. And, 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 you know, you can't take that away from the people that My were there. My grandpa, man, he was at Normandy. Like, yeah. Well, right, but see, you can't take that away from him. You know, th th that was heroic. We're talking about a generation of people that pulled themselves up out of the Great Depression, and they went to Europe, and they went to Asia, and they killed the Nazis, and they killed the imperialists, and, and, and they axis. quite literally, they, for a brief moment in time, secured, they moralize it. You know, secured global peace, right? But, but at the same time, at the same time that all these heroic things are happening, we are in this nation putting Japanese people in internment camps and white and black soldiers are dying on the battlefield, but not together. They're in segregated units, right? So there, there's this nuance and that nuance does not take away from D-Day, right? But it makes the story more complex. It makes it more meaningful, okay? So when you approach people about these topics like the Confederacy, you are poking at their conceptualization of what it means to be American and in turn, their conceptualization of what it means to be them. It becomes very personal and that's why they get so, so angry about it. And I understand, I get angry when you accuse me of being an American hating Marxist because I wanna teach you real history. I understand that. I'm literally worried about walking to the courthouse tomorrow. <laughs> Um, from seven blocks down from where I grew up my whole life. I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't even go without worrying about it. This is a weird year. 
to be worried about like, am I going to survive that? <laughs> like, but you know, it, it is, it, and it's shaken. Like there was punches thrown uh, in my hometown over these issues two weeks ago, you know, and people are, are especially up in arms now. But, uh, it, and I, I totally am getting behind what you're saying is it's like, it shakes their identity on it, a level. It, it does. You know, and you know, Eric brought up the lost cause and, and, and the lost causes of, of immense importance to this narrative. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think Eric mentioned it specifically, but what also is important is the Dunning School of Thought, that for generations, Americans were taught, and there, there, was a, there was an academic effort out of Columbia, an academic effort to basically say Reconstruction failed, not because radical Republicans lost the fight for control of the party, not because Republicans at, at whole lost their willingness to protect African-American rights as opposed to um, protect business. There was a, a severe uh, economic recession, depression in the, in the 1870s. It's, it's not to say, you know, Reconstruction failed because groups like the KKK weren't going to let it succeed. They said, well, Reconstruction failed because these newly freed Black people did not have the intelligence or the ability or the capability to vote, that they, that they were too savage to control the political process. And the Dunning School controls the narrative of Reconstruction for decades, for generations. And you couple that with the lost cause. What's so interesting about the lost cause with the United Daughters of the Confederacy is that they have built, they, they have built an entire, an entire um, you know, constellation, if you will, around this idea that the Confederacy was more patriotic than the Union, that the Confederacy was defending the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, states' rights essentially, and that they fought and died to preserve the Constitution of the U.S., which is, you know, looking back with all the historical knowledge that we have it, it is insanity. But that is how it was taught. You know, and we talk about uh, taking control of the educational system. Well, in the 1920s, the Klan, in conjunction with these uh, Confederate veteran groups like the United Daughters, wrote the textbooks for our schools. Uh, there's an author whose name I've forgotten marie can remember um the the udc uh book karen the historian cox. the woman that wrote uh, what karen cox karen cox yeah so karen cox found in her research that people that had grown up in that school system that were you know very elderly even in the late 1990s still refused to believe that the civil war was fought over slavery and you know what i tell people is go to google and google the transcripts so for Arkansas's example, the Arkansas state constitution under the Confederacy, I actually have a note. I will, I will read you exactly. Arkansas state constitution, 1861, it uses the word slave or slavery seven times. In article seven, section three, it reads, the general assembly shall have no power to pass laws for the emancipation of slaves. If you look at the documents issued by other Confederate states explaining why they were leaving the Union. The Declaration of Clauses of Succeeding States, slave or slavery, 83 times is used as a word. The Mississippi State Legislator, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. The Constitution of the Confederacy, slave or slavery, 10 times, Article 1, Section 9, 
no law denying or impairing the right of property in Negro slaves shall be passed. You don't have to ask me or Eric or Marie or any textbook why the Civil War was fought. Look at what they left us. It's right there. They told us why they fought the Civil War, but these generations after the Lost Cause and the Dunning School and the United Daughters and similar groups have taken control of our history. So now, to try to come full circle, when we talk about this star, it's deeply personal because you have grown up, you have been taught that this is who you are as an American, as a Southern American, particularly. That was a yeah, little preaching. Yeah, no, nah, I mean, I think that's I think that's spot on, and that's kind of what I was alluding to with the comments about the symbolism with the star. Um, if you look at southern states in general, I believe one of the concessions that was made between North and South was to recognize the Confederacy in these in these various capacities, like state flags. And I believe that that point where the star of the Confederacy is above the the name Arkansas represents that the Confederacy was the leading spirit of what Arkansas would be and that the Confederacy got it right. And that's why you see that in many state flags throughout uh, the South. And so because of that, I think that um, the, the, you can't escape the importance of the conversation around, um, around symbolism. And that's why this current push to try to redress that error in the historical narrative is, uh, is important. Um, yeah. It is an interesting time where uh, there are a lot of, I guess, generations alive that are still dealing with this too, right? Like uh, you were talking about people that were elderly in the 90s, but it's like, like my parents' generation, like they are, so like the conversation I'm having with just people from that era, people who are like 60 years old, like, and then I've even had conversations with people on into 70, ages 75. And the, the spanning from not being able to deal with it to racism doesn't exist. Like, and that's just in like that segment of demographic, right? So then it's like, uh, it, and it takes on many other interesting forms that I've run into. It's like, that's just in my, my immediate circle of talking with people and like, how do you guys deal with this? You know, what do you think about this? I read that. Like, uh, did you know the history was this? And it, 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 it's always that demographic I just mentioned, like 60 to 75 years of age that is the most hostile. It's crazy. Like, I would say that's how old that guy that threw the punch uh, a couple weeks ago in Clarksville was. I don't know if you guys are following that story, but crazy. Like, I know the guy that's organizing this rally and everything, but it's like somebody uh, just punched him. Right, like he, he he's like, hey, well, let's talk, and it was like, and then he's throw, then it, it just goes, yeah, lures him into talk, then he throws punches. This is like an old man, like I can't I can't fathom that that's like the the direction it takes. It's like no, like I was really just wanting to have a conversation here, and it seems that like there's a certain demographic of the population that maybe because of the reason we're talking about, it, they can't even have the conversation with you. It goes to punches. It goes straight to punches. Like in that instance, and how, uh, you know, is that, are we seeing that shift out of the narrative? And as we see that slide out of the narrative, it's going to be uh, more comfortable, 
I guess is a way to describe it. I don't know, because it's super uncomfortable right now to talk uh, with people about this and just to go over the history, but everybody's not comfortable. Like that's all, I mean, we are like, I, I love talking about this stuff. It's, it's, it's literally, I'm having a great time, but it is uncomfortable for this certain sect of the population. You want to have empathy towards groups of people, but how can you be empathetic to these groups of people, you know? that deny racism exists when we know when we're talking about this tr version of history and like what you said well like well they left us this like do a do a word search you know sorry for my rant <laughs> <laughs> I, I think part of what um part of the answer to what you're saying is is the way we're approaching this which is education I mean, it is, even if you just say, did you know this, or let me talk to you about the real history, yes, that can absolutely be uncomfortable for some people. And I don't, I, I doubt that Will or Eric know about what's going on in Clarksville, so you may provide a little background there too. But in that situation specifically, if people, like there are going to be some people that completely shut the three of us down because we're from U of A, period. We're academics. They're automatically going to think that we are um, coming from a certain political angle because they've politicized education. You're Marxist. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, uh, are you reaching for a gun right now? Okay. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I do think that we are having some success, especially individual conversations. Will has this great anecdote that I hope he'll share. Uh, but individual conversations, especially, we are having some success with this idea of, of a conversation about the, the history in general, about the education part of this. Um, so it's, it's about how you approach it, for sure. But there are, there are going to be people who will never listen to this. Well, I, like, I guess the, why the rant, right, is like, I am, as a, an Arkansan, as a historian, as a son, and trying to reconcile the fact that people I love and care about deny the existence of racism. Like, somebody I love doesn't believe racism exists, Right? So I like living with that is a weird, uh, a weird thing, you know, and it's, uh, and I still love that person, you know, so it becomes, it, it, it takes on these other forms of like, you know, it's not as, as easy as me just unfriending this person on Facebook. It is so much more complex than this. And it's like, are they better served uh, with me being around having these conversations, even though I'm getting touted as a, a hippie liberal Marxist yada yada college professor it's like I just don't think that Jeff Woods and people were brainwashing me you know like I know it, it just every every professor that Marie and I had we went to the same uh, graduate school uh, Arkansas Tech it's like I those are nothing but great people they weren't passing uh communist ideas into my, my my skull for me to pass on to my students now um if anything they made me like more accepting of like okay i i love this person who's a racist uh and i haven't cut them off yet maybe they can benefit from me not getting angry about this uh towards them i, I you know that's something i'm still trying to deal with like on a personal level i mean it's just like 
these are people alive in my life and I, I don't really know how, and they're pissed off that I, that I say the things I say and podcasts about the things that I podcast and that I'm teaching the, the real history. So it, it, it takes on this, this very, I think this is important to Arkansas history on that level too. It's like, yes, this is, this is how it's impacting me as an Arkansan right now. Right. And, and in my community, even it's like, uh, Another uh, guy that's been on this podcast several times, we're doing a series of uh, podcasts on the lost cause mythology through cinema, right? And we're, this is our hometown is having a, a, a rally tomorrow. And it's like people are, are really concerned about just being able to walk to the courthouse. It's just yeah, a uh, Black Lives Matters rally, right? Yes, right? You can't even say that because like the Marxist organization, like I literally, and it's just like, look, if I can't, march to the courthouse for better equality in my country like that's all I mean that's what I'm here doing and you can turn it into whatever you want to turn it into because it is turning into or you know are you a communist reaching for a gun like what is it is there going to be protesters bust in I saw the Black Lives Matters bus at the Clarksville Walmart like that was a, something yesterday so it's you know the community is definitely up in arms so it's a weird time across the board like we've got statues coming down it, it's 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 fascinating time to be alive uh without even getting into the pandemic or anything yeah um i would just offer the the, the thoughts around that conversation around comfort um from my perspective as a black man from my perspective as a historian and as an american um the two things that came to mind listening to you all are um, a conversation about um, growing pains and a conversation about patience. So um, America needs to grow. We need to grow out of this. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, it's, it's right how history has been taught because it's not. It's not right how history has been taught. And we can't grow without coming into, coming to that reckoning. We have to actually tell the truth about our history, even as a state. And so comfort is not a concern of mine when we talk about education. Um, I understand that certain people aren't gonna receive it and that's on them if they're not willing to grow because of the pain that's associated with truth and growth, and that's, that's on them. Um, but we need to be real in order for us to grow. And it's sometimes growth comes with growing pain and we just gotta deal with that because that's, America has, has yet to deal with the growing pains from the Civil War. That's why we're still dealing with this issue right now, these differences and all these things. That's why it was mistaught. That's why the narrative was misshapen because we won't come to a true reckoning. So until we are actually ready to go through that pain and deal with that discomfort, this is really just a conversation and these are really just words. Um, and then second of all, when it comes to um, dealing with these growing pains, the, the conversation about patience is important. When I talk to my students, I tell my students one of the worst things that you can do is engage in presentism. You can't assign your moral values and how you see the world based uh, to these people and how they made decisions in their time. The world was different. These people lived in a time of social Darwinism when they believed that people were fixed in their places in society. We know that not to be true, but we've grown beyond that. And so now when we're dealing with people who struggle with dealing with these truths, we have to be patient because that's the goal of education is to come to an understanding about reality, right? 
And so those are the two things that I think are most important to take away. We have to be real, even in the spite of the growing pains and that we have to be patient with each other and come to an understanding and not be so quick to assign a judgment on whether something is good or bad, especially when we're talking about things in the past that's not productive to growth at all. For sure. Right now, I, I agree with that completely. And that, you know, that can be, you know, that, that can be um, a, a problem, I think, when you try to address these topics is you say, well, so, you know, anecdotally, you know, I, I have a family member who will say, well, you know, back in, when, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, an older family member, when I was growing up as a kid, you know, my parents always used, you know, the N-word and, you know, and, and they didn't mean anything by it. It's just what they did. That's just what they used. And, you know, the, you try to say, you know, to, to, to that people or to that person, well, you know, that was a really racist thing to do. And then they, when they, you know, want to say, well, but at the time it wasn't considered racist. Well, you know, it's always been racist, but, but I get, but I get their point. Like, so I, I see what you mean that it was so common that it just seemed okay. Like I, I can wrap my head around that um, if I need to. And, and I can understand that. And, you know, I, I, I can be patient with your story, but to Eric's point about growing pains, I've been patient with your story and with your justification of their behavior within the context of their time. Now I need you to be patient and let me explain to you, you know, why they thought that that was an okay thing, you know, what they had been taught and what, you know, what they were acting out without knowing it. Like, I need you to be patient with me and it might hurt. Yeah, you're going to have some growing pains for sure. Um, so I mean, I, I can be patient with you and I cannot, you know, uh, you know, uh, practice like Eric used the word presentism with you but I do need you to be patient in turn. Like it, it, it's a give and take. And education is supposed to be a give and take, right? I mean, the best way that you learn is by understanding that you're wrong about something. Like you can't know if you're right until you know how you're wrong, right? And you know, you know, there, there, you know, there's this idea of, you know, the like Marie mentioned, you know, we're all from U of A. And that to some extent for many people already dis discredits us out of the gate. It doesn't matter that they're from you know, Russellville and Little Rock, and I'm from Hot Springs, and that, you know, we are of this state, that we are products of this state, but we're also at U of A, and that, you know, and that discredits us. Sidebar, I was bragging about having you guys, I'm like, I'm having three University of Arkansas professors on, woo, right? So, just so you know, like, I was very excited about talking to you. <laughs> well, I mean, for, for some people, that might be, but for the general public, you know, not so much, um, but we are Arkansans, and, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, educational. I think for probably all of us, it's probably also um, personal, you know, for different reasons, for, for various reasons. Um, you know, I, I, you know, from, if from no other, if for no other reason, the fact that we have, you know, a connection to this state, we are of this state. Um, I had something else that I wanted, you guys kept going, I made notes, but now I can't read my own handwriting. Um, so, Somebody feel free to interject and shut me up, and then it'll come back to me eventually. Yeah, hey, well, sidebar too. You guys are the, feel free. Like I tell everybody, this this is is this your second time on Marie? But like, we're, I hope that is, you come on ten more times, right? And all you guys, like, if you ever want to come talk about anything, I got a lot of interest. We can stick just to history or martial arts. Like I'm set. My podcast studio is at my martial arts academy. You know, like it's. Uh, I'm down to to talk civil war movies with you guys or anything so anytime you guys would like to come on talk about your research 
or anything, um, to consider this a platform or an outlet. Uh, that was like when Marie was like, Hey, you want to do this podcast? I was like, uh, yes, please. That would be great. That's exactly, I mean, I love doing this stuff. You know, it is, it's, it, it is in our cans and this is like the podcast embodies like what everything I'm interested in here in my own state, you know, and I get to sit here in my business podcast about history. Uh, and if you guys ever want to come on again, uh, you're more than welcome to individually because I, Marie and I, are, uh, we do, we do need to get on planning now that we're back in the swing of like a 1968 election episode because the parallels between yeah. this year and 68 are wild. They are. Um, so, you know, M Marie mentioned, uh, I had a little bit of an anecdote. I guess I can, I can tell you about that. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was having my air conditioner unit um, replaced. It was, it, it was on its last breath, you know, it had to go. So we're having that done. And the guy doing it was a self-described hillbilly. Really nice guy. The uh, older guy, uh, kind of remind me of like an old kind of like, you know, hippie, you know, long gray hair, ponytail. Tell me he's a hillbilly. All right, we can go with that. I mean, I can, I, I can dig it. So we're, we're just talking in my driveway after all of the work is done. And I have no idea how, but somehow uh, like politics and kind of like the Confederacy and kind of these things kind of came up. I have no idea how they came up. It keeps um, happening to me too. <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea. And I just started talking to this guy about some of the things that we're talking about because he kind of gave me the impression that he was kind of, you know, more of this mindset, right? So I'm just talking and we're talking about the civil war and confederacy and reconstruction, the state flag. And then he probably doesn't interrupt me for 15, 20 minutes, which I'm fine with. I love having a captive audience. And he, he just starts asking like, like a barrage of questions. I mean, we, we talked for over an hour in my driveway, just all of these questions. And at the end of the conversation, he says to me, you know, when I got here today, he said, he said, first off, you should know that I have a Confederate flag. My wife has been after me forever over this flag, but I have a Confederate flag because for me, it's Southern pride. And he said, when I got here today, I was one of those guys that I would argue with you and tell you it was about Southern pride and I'm not getting rid of my damn flag. He said, but after talking to you for an hour, he said, I'm not that guy anymore. Nobody has ever told me anything that you just told me. He said, I had no idea. And you know, I said, you know, man, like I said you know, earlier, I said, you don't have to take it from me. I can show you where to go on Google and get transcripts of all the documents they left for us to read. And you can see it for yourself. And I, I'm fairly certain that he did. He had to come back two days later to like adjust something or, or something. And he told me he went home that night and said he just like as quickly as he could regurgitated everything I had told him to his family and that he was so excited and that he was looking stuff up. And, and, and like I'll probably never see this dude again unless I have a problem with my air conditioner, I guess. But, but to Marie's point you know, earlier, these just have to be like sort of soft educational conversations. And, and this was totally organic, was not planned. But, you know, again, at the end of the conversation, I was the guy who, when I got here, would have defended the Confederate flag. I'm not that guy anymore. And that's, I mean, you're not, you're not going to find people that want to learn like that. It, you know, that's, you know, but it was such that what that experience said to me was that this approach could work. 
That's super encouraging, man, because I haven't heard, uh, well, I will say like similar things have occurred with some people my own age through those conversations. But that's kind of like my venting my frustrations earlier of like outside, like my parents' generation and stuff uh, of, of trying to have just those sincere, like the, maybe this guy was what, 40s, 50s or something that you were talking he, about? He was, oh, he told me what year he was born. He was like 55-ish. So like my dad just turned 60 the other day, but like that is the, the demographic that, that I want to like have the, the productive conversations with the most and, and not to stereotype them into all people from this demographic or in Arkansas or this way or anything. Like I, I know tons of great people that don't fit that mold, you know, yeah. uh, but that is, that's super encouraging. I'm, I'm no, not there gonna... are people, our generation that don't fit that mold. I mean, gen generations are such, I mean, for lack of a better term, they're just total BS. Like, you, you know, you, you've, you've put, you know, millions of people into like a box and it says, okay, well, you know, you were, you know, you're a boomer. So you were the product of your family being thrilled to have economic prosperity. And they had a lot of sex and you were like one of eight that was born. And then you grew up with all of these traditional values and we'd reject all of them now. Like that, you know, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's, that, that, that's, that's useless. You know, and who cares? Who cares? Um, you know, uh, the, mo the most interesting part of like that story is, you know, is the sex part, you know, but beyond that, who cares? So, um, you know, but this guy, yeah, I think he, he, I think he qualified as a boomer, just like marginally, like right there on the end. I think the boomer cutoff is 1964. My dad is right there on the end, 1964. Um, he's a boomer. My mom is technically a Gen X uh, less than a year later. You know, who cares? I'm an elder um, millennial myself, you know, I think. Yeah, no, yeah. I think I think all of us are the elder uh, the elder statesmen and women of of uh, the millennialism at this point, um, which is also com completely meaningless. You know, if you grew up in an era where you've got mail like made you really excited, like you're not a millennial. Like, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I, who cares? But um, anyway, you know that was encouraging. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask Eric if he would to kind of make this a little bit more historical uh, for a minute. Um, you know, between, let's say, 19 and, well, 1920, 1900, 1920. So, um, you know, really, you know, after Plessy and then going up to like Tulane, Arkansas, there are, um, you know, considerable issues of racial violence all over this nation. And I thought maybe Eric could kind of give us some of that if, he, if he's up for it. Um. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think that, you know, that that history um, about the racial violence in Elaine and the, and the racial violence at the beginning of the 20th century um, in Arkansas and the, the the reason that many people don't know about a lot of that racial violence is, um, is one and the same when we talk about this conversation about the flag and the, and the symbolism and the, the deliberate effort to um, to reinterpret this narrative towards uh, the goals of white supremacy. Um, but I would comment on the, the, the conversation that, uh, that you had with the, with the guy that came to do the work on your AC wheel. I think it's important, that story is good and it's important because it, it demonstrates a, a few things for me. Um, I think that this conversation and the, the importance about this conversation is largely for white people in this country. Um, I think black people grow up with a deep understanding of this hypocrisy. Um, the education system may, uh, may skew 
the facts around what we are taught, but just from a general understanding, I think we see things from a total different perspective. And so aren't we aren't as wrapped up in that in that mythology that is taught um, many times. And not not um a hundred percent exact, but I, I believe that to be the case. Um and um in addition to that, I think that it's important to highlight that because this conversation is important for white people in this country, for white people in this in this region and for white people in the state. Um, I think that it's important that white voices elevate this conversation about the misrepresentation. And the reason I believe that is because that man that had that Confederate flag wouldn't have heard shit coming from me. I could have told him the same thing that you told him the exact same way and he wouldn't have heard a single word of it, right? But um, the voice that it came from was important to him. And it was important because it gave him courage to actively go and relearn the things that he had been mistaught, right? It gave him a prompt to, to not just dismiss it as some political bullshit, but as an opportunity to actually learn and grow because it came from a voice that um, he would receive it from. And that's why I think that this conversation is, is important because anytime that uh, white voices can begin to elevate um, this this part of our history that has been purposefully misshapen, I think that that is going to have the most effect in educating people and actually changing minds and actually getting us towards some semblance of progress. Um, but again, as I mentioned, the the, the racial violence that occurred in, in East Arkansas and Elaine um, at the beginning of the 20th century, I think um, the misremembrance the around uh, these issues, the way that it was covered in the media, um, the way that uh, the racial violence was basically uh, swept under the rug, the, the, the murder of uh, hundreds of African-Americans um, and the, the, the essentially mob violence that occurred in Eastern Arkansas um, that was um, put down by the governor, governor at the time, I think it was Governor Bruff. Uh, he called out the, 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 the state, um, the state guard, the Arkansas state troops to the Arkansas state militia to come out and squash this quote unquote rebellion that was, um, that was occurring in Eastern Arkansas. And this exacerbated the violence that occurred there as well. And so after these incidences, um, the, the actual facts around the violence itself was skewed in the media. It was, it was literally whitewashed away. Um, the, the gravity of the violence was whitewashed away in the Arkansas media and the Arkansas newspapers. Um, and the way these events were covered um, is it goes hand in hand with this effort to reshape the narrative around the Civil War the narrative around white supremacy and this and this connection between the North and the South. There is a consistent effort and a consistent strategy that is used in both of these uh, situations. And I think that that was kind of the connection that um, that you can see based on um, some of the outside history, um, just beyond the state flag that you can connect to actual events on the ground. What was it? Uh maybe you guys can offer some insight just recently culturally that's going on. Like I, I've been seeing multiple people make remarks like, Hey, well, the only reason you care about Tulsa getting bombed over here in the same time period is because you saw it on HBO. Like, have you, have you guys been following with that? Like they tell the story of the Tulsa uh, riots in the Watchmen on the HBO. I haven't seen it yet, but that kind of got a whole bunch of people woke to the fact that it even happened. 
right? Like you're saying with Elaine, um, I had a historian on um, months back who's who's writing about this right now. He's writing a book about this. Uh, Mitch Lerner, he's a Cold War historian, uh, yeah. expert on the uh, Pueblo incident. But um, I mean, he's, it's like the people, they just don't know, right? And, and it's like, and it takes like a, a, a hip TV show on HBO to tell them what's up. And then they're like, oh man, I'm woke to this now. Let me share about it on social media. But it's like, it, it's a sort of a strange byproduct. I, I appreciate that it gets the conversation going, but it's a weird avenue, but maybe, maybe what, what do you think about that? You think we need more of that? Like, is that a, is that a positive thing, a, a way in which we could raise awareness right now? Your podcast is, yeah. oh, go ahead, Maria, I'm sorry. No, you're fine, you're fine, I'm sorry, Eric. Go for it. Uh, I think just what you're saying is just such a part of the lost cause. I mean, that's what you're saying is that we don't know about Elaine because that's part of the lost cause. The Daughters of the Confederacy are never going to allow Elaine to end up in a textbook. They don't want you to know about that. And if they do allow it, it's only when it's taught as this rebellion, as this, this act of black violence against white Arkansans. The, the truth of it is never um, explored. And so I, I think that any way that young people can learn this history is good. And from what I've, I've not watched the Watchmen episode, but from what I've heard, it's very to, I see it now. Yeah, I've heard it's great. And so if you're doing this history well, I don't think it matters the, the medium you're getting it from. Sounds like we need to do a podcast episode over that Watchmen uh, <laughs> episode, honestly. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I would, would agree I, with Marie. Um, I would just say that I think that these, um, any opportunities to make people aware of actual historical truth is important. And, um, I work in media too. I do, um, I do film and digital media. And one of the reasons that I started, um, my business and that venture was because of the fact that this is where people learn now on your phone, you know, in, in, in these digital realms and in these digital settings. And it's a lot easier for them to sit down and stomach history when it's coupled with creativity, right? History is kind of like vegetables. If you think about the foods, you know, it's, it's the stuff that you actually could benefit the most from, but people want the candy. So the digital realm is how we actually put the content, the nutritional value of vegetables into a format that they can consume like candy. And even if it's a difficult topic like race or like um, Tulsa or Elaine or slavery or even now George Floyd or any of the, the, the Black Lives Matter movements or any of these type of conversations, you understand it is difficult for people to engage in them. But by placing it into especially history into a digital format, it makes it more consumable. It makes it easier for them to sit down and, and grapple with it and deal with it in, on their own terms. For sure. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, something that was kind of interesting that happened with, with media, um, right after George, George Floyd, um, Netflix and Amazon Prime both, and maybe some others, um, put together, you know, lists of documentaries that, you know, you might want to watch to better understand the context behind George Floyd. Um, you know, kind of in, in a really interesting byproduct of the um, Trump Tulsa rally in June, 
was that suddenly everybody learned about Juneteenth in Tulsa. You know, uh, it just, media, I mean, yeah, it is, it is, you know, like digital history. I mean, this is, you know, where, where things are going and how people learn. Um, but people, talking to a guy Trump probably learned about it and his administration, like not even <laughs> talking shit about that guy, but seriously, like I felt like they were not even aware or charting. It's like, or, or do you think, or was that a, I felt like it was a total ball drop. Like, Oh, whoops. Uh, oh, oh, we're going to, we didn't know that. Uh, or do you think it was like, nah, we knew we did it anyway. Like, what do you guys think? Make America yeah. great again. <laughs> I'm not on that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, in, it's interesting. Like I, I, I was, I was charting that and I'm like, which way do I view this? Are you guys intentional here? Or unintentional? Like, was this a slip up or was, cause I could totally see him not even being aware of it. Of all places to, to go of all days. The president doesn't move by mistake at all. That's a great point. That's a great point too. And like, so like, that's like, so some value in like me, me looking at that from that perspective and you, you putting in context there of like, no way. And I'm not even uh, conservative uh, leaning would vote for that guy, support that guy in any way. Matter of fact, somebody shared uh, there was a flag hanging up right across from their house this morning. It said, F your feelings. And I was like, really? Like it was a, it was a Trump 2025, but it was like, F your feelings. And I was like, that's the opposite of the direction I'm trying to head with this, guys. No sense, no, no sense of irony. Um, so, you know, with, I'm trying to think of, there's a couple of points I want to make. We can have to kind of backtrack a little bit. Uh, and it's sort of on point here with, with, with this digital media and the impact that digital media has. Um, I, you know, I think if we want to talk about um, visual history and its impact and put this into historical context, Birth of a Nation, 1915. You know, Birth of a Nation, and this, will, this can kind of get us into the second KKK too. You know, Birth of a Nation Based off, of, based off of a series of books um, from 1905 by Thomas Dixon, a guy from North Carolina, very much a lost causer, you know, that, that sort of guy. Um, between Dixon's book and uh, the film adaptation by uh, uh, Griffith, B.W. Griffith. Yeah, um, we, just, we just did a know, podcast on that to open our Civil War lost cause mythology series. No, birth of a... Birth of a Nation created the platform for the second KKK to jump from and, 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 and form. You know, that, that, that movie is insane. I, I show clips of it to freshmen. Um, first off, the film is full of black people, but none of them are actually black people. They're white people in blackface. Okay, so you've got white people in blackface playing the role of these savage, uh, newly freed slaves that cannot engage politically. And more importantly, they cannot be uh, trusted to be anywhere near white women. You know, white women is white women and their, their, their sexuality and, 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 you know, and the, the virtuousness of their sexuality are always the main concern of, you know, of the KKK. Um, you know, Ida B. Wells, at the turn of the century, put together her study that basically showed uh, almost every lynching that happened was the product of an of a false report of a black man raping a white woman. 
you know, that's what got Ida B. Wells essentially kicked out of the South because they were going to lynch her for, you know, for making that a point. Um, but Birth of a Nation depicts all of this. The first version of the Klan does not burn crosses and it does not wear white hoods. Birth of a Nation creates that. The second KKK was very much life imitating art. Uh, the guy in Georgia who uh, created that, Simmons, Simmons in Georgia, who created the second KKK, um, you know, he looked at the first Klan and he looked at Birth of a Nation for all of his inspiration and he designed it around that with, you know, one really specific exception was that the first Klan was, you know, loosely organized by state and it, 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 its primary role uh, female sexuality aside, its primary role was to deny blacks the right to vote and uh, to deny them, you know, their, their political, you know, their, their political uh, participation and to, de to deny them any sort of successful economic participation. That was their main goal, right? So once those goals are achieved, there's actually an author, uh, Linda Gordon, who says, you know, the first KKK disappeared, uh, mostly because they achieved their goals and like they didn't have to really hang around. But Simmons bases his second clan off of them. He bases all of the imagery um, and the ideology off of Birth of a Nation with the exception of, because at that point, um, the way African-Americans were treated in American society in the 19-teens wasn't in question anymore. North or South, it wasn't in question. Everybody just knew how you treated African-Americans. So the second clan didn't have to focus on them. The second clan was able to, to grasp on this idea of 100% Americanism after World War I, the idea of return to normalcy, and focus on specifically above, above Blacks in most instances, particularly in the northern branches of the clan, focus on Catholics and Jews. They were significantly anti-Semitic they were extremely anti-Catholic, and these had international contexts. They're so against Jews because, like the Nazis that will believe the same thing after them, you know, they thought all Jews were, you know, going to take control of the banks and of the economy and, you know, engage in loaning money at extremely high, um, uh, you know, interest rates, you know, all of these stereotypes. Not to mention they killed Jesus. Not to mention they killed Jesus. And then with the Catholics, well, you know, the Catholics had to look to the Pope. The Catholics in their mind could not be good members of a democratic society because they looked to the Pope, right? And the Catholics also wanted to control the country in, 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 in the Klan's ideology. So the Klan by 1920, 1921, you know, greatly expanded their, their, their target. And I mention this specifically because I, you know, I want to keep this somewhat in context of the Arkansas state flag. When that Confederate star was added, it was added by a state legislator that was dominated by the Ku Klux Klan. Arkansas had tens of thousands of Klan members. Little Rock was the home of the female auxiliary of the Klan. The man, Neil Bollinger, from Pulaski County that won his seat in the Arkansas Assembly because of a rigged Klan election was the man that put forth the bill to have the Confederate star added. So the Confederate star isn't just all of these things about the Confederacy and Reconstruction. 
it was added by the second iteration of the Klan that hated you for being black, Catholic, Jew, immigrant, if you were anti-prohibition, if you were almost always, it's kind of a weird relationship with the Klan, if you were pro-women's voting rights, they hated you, um, although they used the Klan, they used Klan women, Klan women's votes to control elections, but everybody else. Um, second, the second Klan hated everybody that wasn't a white Protestant, that bought into their ideology, right? So this group that hated everybody, that hated me, that hated you, that probably hated most of the people in the state today, put this star on our flag. And by leaving that star on the flag, we have allowed these very hateful people to commemorate an equal, an equally or more so hateful entity in the Confederacy that is supposed to represent all of us as Arkansans. So there, there, there is, I think, a, a significant moral and ethical argument to be made that whether or not you even like the history, you can't deny what the Klan was. How much of, and you know, Marie, I've, I've seen you make comments on this and like it just keeps popping into my head, but like what parallels are there between like what you're talking about and we, we mentioned earlier, but it's like, it, it seems like if you are toting these ideas or talking about it now, you, uh, you know, oh, you, you, you want equality and you're a bi person, well, you must be a communist. Or uh, are you reaching for a gun and are you also a sex offender? Like, it's just like everything is a move, uh, it's some sort of weird move to discredit, but I see the discrediting terms while they may have shifted a tad uh in a different extreme direction it's like there are some reoccurrent things like calling someone a communist to discredit them like that we're seeing now that i'm like with uh, the comments about white black lives matter it being a being a marxist organization but it's like that's a reoccurrent theme that i see coming from the time that you're talking about honestly i mean a little bit forward but in the zeitgeist of of what you're saying like yeah, a, I would. What sort of link? I would agree. To, like Cold War era stuff, like that, basically. Well, Eric, did, did you want to have something? Yeah, um, I, I'm not going to speak to the Cold War aspect of it, but I would just speak to the link between um, what you referred to as the zeitgeist. Um, this conversation about the connection between Black progress and socialist influence. Um, these things. This. Elaine itself was a labor movement, and it was the reason that these people were easily targeted is because they were um, connected to these socialist aspects and these socialist elements. Um, but I think it's important to understand that um, even when we talk about the, the growth and the evolution of the Klan and these aspects of white supremacy, um, you have to understand that there is, um, that history is not linear. History is not even cyclical, it's more spherical. If there's a continual evolution and you're never at the same point in time, even though you can look like you're in a similar position. And so I would argue even in pushback against those who argue that the Klan had achieved its goal. Um, I believe that the Klan infiltrated American systems and continued to infiltrate American systems as opposed to go away. Um, if you actually look at that time period, when we look at the progressive movement following the, uh, the end of Reconstruction, there was a push against these groups like the KKK, right? There was a push, when you talk about this push against uh, the evolution of the Klan, a lot of it becomes because of these 
expansions in the progressive movement, whether you're talking about women's rights, whether you're talking about uh, immigration rights, whether you're talking about labor organizing and these groups that came uh, to provide organizing uh, for these immigrant and African-American laborers. Um, all of these things, like they, they don't happen in a vacuum. And so the evolution that leads to this second KKK comes out of these, uh, this, this same zeitgeist as is referred to that, that expands the, the, the second KKK's target is allowed to expand, uh, not because the KKK achieved its goals necessarily, but because there was pushback against these type of groups, but also there was an infiltration of American systems by these types of groups. So you didn't need to see a clan as much until you started seeing more black and brown people immigrate from overseas, or you see black people migrating from the South into these urban areas to where you see a, a need to reassert that visible power. Because the conversation that we're having today is entirely about power, right? And, and, this, and it's about controls the power of the narrative. There's this African proverb that goes until the lion has its own historian, the story will all the story of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And because the daughters of the American uh, Republic and the or the daughters of the Confederacy and all these groups were in power and allowed to create this narrative, um, we have this misshapen information. But at its core, the ability to record the narrative is a question of power, right? And so w w when, when people take offense to how they've been taught this history, it's because they feel less empowered. They take it personally because they feel like it's a direct attack on the power that they have as an American or the person that they are in this, or that they've been taught that they are in this country. And I would challenge people to see not the expansion of equality for black people and for, for people of color as a challenge towards your personal power, especially as a white person, but I would see it as an expansion of America's power because America would then actually be standing on the ideals that it was on paper founded on. Even though, we, even though in history, we know that these uh, ideals were complicated at best because the people that wrote them were slave owners. So this complicated history has always been a part of America but we have to actually start to deal with that to move forward and to actually begin to empower more people than just those who have traditionally been empowered. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, I was <clears throat> doing some diversity training for work on microaggressions and they were like, uh, it, it was actually super beneficial. Like I keep talking to people about how, how much fun I had at the, at the training, but they, um, <clears throat> One thing is like, they were like, okay, well, the United States, if, if it starts living up to its ideals by 2045 is going to be multicultural, multiracial and everything. And like quite literally, and, and they kind of like set this up. They're like, and I bet you are thinking, where does that leave you? And I was like, damn it, it does, you know? And it's like, and I'm not even anybody that comes down on like, yeah, it's super uncomfortable for me and my offspring. Like it's not. But for a lot of people, and it is, it's like that first thought of like, that what, that's what equality looks like. It's like, yes, that's, 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 our, that's evolution. We can live up to our highest ideas. And that doesn't mean that I have to go away, that my descendants are like, oh, God, 
no more white people or whatever it is that, that people built it up to be. I think that's just living up to our highest ideas that we've always said we were, we were trying to live up to. And until we own this, these things and also the way I think we say these things, like somebody was making a point the other day that was like uh, reading an article that was saying that George Washington's teeth may have been sourced. From enslaved people, yeah. May have been sourced guys okay that's a that's a yeah. great way of saying that that and, and Stolen. yeah exactly hey <laughs> dennis man i'm gonna pay you to extract those teeth for me is how i read the story and how i've talked with people about it presently this week but just did the way it was told it's like well if we say it's they were sourced well and also not only that this was a common practice in europe uh with peasants and poor people, let's, you know, that's why it's normal for slaves to want to give George Washington his teeth. Like, I, I just can't tell it that way. Like, and when I read that article, I'm like, why'd you say sourced? Intentionally. That's what you get at Whole Foods, you know, not, yeah. Oh, yeah, but I, I think there's a, I think, like you, well, you said this earlier, just like conversations such as these free flowing. I, I like, I, I thought about mess. I was kind of messaging Marie. It's been a crazy, like back to school time of like, just seeing like, Hey, how's this conversation need to go today? But it's like, I just like them go like it going all of these crazy directions. And I, I don't know. I grow from it. It's chaotic. I realize, but it's, uh, well, it, it's organic. Um, so to, to kind of to kind of mention uh, Elaine again, and you, and you asked about the Cold War. So there, you know, I mean, there is a connection, um, even if it's not readily apparent. So, you know, it, it's no it is no mystery, at least to the four people here and hopefully not a mystery to, to anybody that um, Americans since, you know, the, the last third of the 1800s have been, um, you know, very depending on where you are in the country. Uh, you know, anywhere from anxious to outright terrified of labor movements and labor unions, right? Um, you know, the, these things, you know, push back on the worldview of, you know, uh, kind of unfettered capitalism, profit above all, right? You know, they, uh, you know when, you, when you see your economic system is perfect, it's difficult for you to wrap your mind around how you might need to change it. So with Elaine, you know, and Eric mentioned this, Elaine was a labor movement. You had a, 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 an area of Arkansas, majority black, minority white, but the blacks were trapped in a, in, in a peonage system. They, you know, they, they're producing most of the crops, they don't control the price. So they were forming a union in order to take control of their livelihood. And this ends up with, you know, uh, they're having a meeting in a church, a few random white guys show up, they shoot into the church, one of the white guys is eventually killed, uh, testimony later by some of them that were there so that it was that they were killed in crossfire. It's not really readily apparent from best I can tell. But what you end up with is a, is a multi-day race massacre in Elaine because these Elaine blacks wanted to unionize. It's this fear of, of a labor movement. And you know, as Eric mentioned, you know, the, the state national guard and the governor show up during this process and exacerbate the issue. But even beyond that, 
this fear of unionizing blacks was so pervasive that white people from Tennessee and Mississippi crossed the border to help put down this so-called, you know, rebellion of blacks. I mean, th this is this is atrocious, and then generations of people from this area covered it up. You know, we still don't know what the death toll is because it was covered up. We get numbers anywhere from 20 to 850. You know, but it, but it's a race massacre, and I think I think that the typically uh, accepted number is 200. Marie or, Marie or Eric might have a different number for that. There's an international context, and this is kind of how I'm going to try to segue that to the Cold War. The international context is that while there is this existing fear of labor unions, there is an exacerbated fear of labor unions because while Elaine is happening, the United States is quietly intervening in Bolshevik Russia, trying to help the white Russian army put down the Red Army. Now, that's a failure, by the way. This is also why the KKK is so damn scared of the Jews, because in, an, in the United States, Woodrow Wilson himself thinks that all Bolsheviks are Jews, and Jews and Bolsheviks in this equation are bad. So Elaine is multi-layered. It's local, it's state, it's national, it's international. There's an immense fear about labor. So then you fast forward to the Cold War 25 years later, give or take, and, you know, and you're asking about kind of, or you asked about, you know, kind of how do these, these mindsets sort of, you know, continue to trickle down, you know, the, the, the timeline. I tweeted during the president's inauguration speech that Joe McCarthy has won because that's all I could wrap my head around was this very dark vision of United States that has been infiltrated by the Marxist, by the communist. It was very Nixonian, and most of his campaign has been very Nixonian. He's, he's teetered between Nixon and Reagan on some things, uh, and has in 2016 as well. But, you know, that, that, that McCarthyism, that, that undermine your power and your authority, and just undermine your very humanity and your livelihood, by accusing you of being a communist or a Marxist, which are, you know, embedded in the American psyche is antithetical to being an American, you know, th that is the easiest way to discredit somebody. So, you know, when people in this, in this conversation, you know, talk about these things, the easiest way to discredit us is, and this has come up, it's say, well, he's a Marxist. And, 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 and that's total, that's total, total bullshit i buy the new iphone every time it comes out all right you know uh no, I'm, upgrade right now you know i mean if if anything you know punish me for you know giving the chinese money i don't know what to tell you um the chinese also being you know more capitalist than anything at this point economically um but it discredits people and what, what people can't seem to wrap their mind around and this goes to the conversation you were having a minute ago about and then the 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 comments eric made about you know on paper 1776, 1783, 1789, on paper, we have these fantastic ideas, these universal ideas, everybody's equal. And over the course of American history, it has been a fight to make sure that everybody is equal. Is it, you know, do just elite white men get to vote? Do all white men, regardless of economic status, get to vote? At what point do black people get to vote? At what point do white people get to vote? Or excuse me, white women get to vote? Um, you know, at what point do we have labor unions, immigrant rights? At what point do we give children the right to not be worked to death in factories? This is a constant 
struggle. So you have this vision of America on one hand that we have achieved all, we've got the colorblind conservatism thing going on, racism is gone, we're all equal, grab your bootstraps, unless you're an automotive industry or an airline, then we're gonna bail you out, you don't have to worry about your bootstraps, but grab your bootstraps, maybe even a farmer, you know, you don't have to always do bootstraps as a farmer either, but on the other hand, you have people like us saying, hey, look, we have these really awesome ideas that were written on paper over 200 years ago, but we haven't achieved them. And we want to achieve them, not because we hate the United States, but because we love the damn place. And when you love something, you push it to be better, whether it's a spouse or a kid, or if I you know, want, my, want my cat to be nicer in the mornings. You know, you push them into different behavior because you want them to be better. I don't hate America. That's, that's, that's ludicrous. That's asinine. If you want to talk about cutting off a conversation, that's how you do it. It's bullshit. What we have is the realization that we haven't achieved those goals. And that's all we're trying to do. Yeah. 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 And we've devoted our lives to the study of this country's history. How could you say that we hate this country? But right. that's exactly where it goes. Well, and then too, so like, I think everybody today has demonstrated a pretty good, and, and how do you have a good, we have to have a good attitude about it. It's kind of like getting picked on, right? Um, it's, you gotta, I gotta have a good attitude about it. I can't get emotional. I can't get upset, right? It's just, it's something I've dedicated myself to. It's actually what you're saying. It's that I love this place. It's that I want these, this idealism to be achieved. I'm an idealist and it has been my downfall many times, right? But it has also been things that have pushed me to success in like every aspect of my life to be better. So it, it's interesting how idealism can kind of take both though, a little too much of it over here. And yeah, I want to build on something that Eric said a few minutes ago, if you don't mind. For sure. So talking about Elaine as this labor movement and the idea that Elaine was kind of vilified or, or the, the movement that was going on in Elaine was vilified by calling it socialism, by calling it communism. You know, you mentioned earlier about what I study, well, in the Cold War, the White Citizens Council takes that idea and applies it to the NAACP as well. I mean, you vilify, the, the, the White Citizens Council completely vilified and outlawed in many cases, the NAACP, and they had the support of white Americans because they called it a communist organization. So anytime you have equality, I mean, and that's just one specific example of this overall idea we were talking about, but anytime you have equality, especially in the South, movements for equality, they are immediately labeled communists. And that goes back to Elaine because, because of what's happening in Russia in the late 19, after, the, after World War I, and then that gets us to the 1950s at the height of the Cold War um, with the Citizens Council as well. So that, that charge of being a communist, if you're for equality or for racial progress in any way, that is deeply entrenched in modern American history. And I think a lot of people um, actually, especially label black movements as anti-American because black people have always challenged the soul of America. Black people has always challenged uh, America according to the ideals that were put on paper, because um, if the, the least of these don't receive the, the rights that are guaranteed on paper, then no rights are guaranteed for anybody. Um, but I will also say that I don't think that this is uniquely American, because even if we look at the founding of the country and the ideals that 
America was founded on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They were derived from life, liberty, and the pursuit of property from John Locke. And that's a British concept. So those, those, those ideals are universal, um, as Will mentioned. But for me, the reason that I don't hold America to these same ideals is because I, I look at these founding principles and I understand that the same man, John Locke, who gave these ideas, would also make the same comment that any Negro, any Negro slave was to, was to be under the complete control of this slave owner, whether it was in regards to religion or whatever else. And so the fact that these two statements come out of the same mouth to me is American. Is that is America's truth? Is the fact that we were founded on these ideals, but in practice we have never lived up to them, and they are worthy of striving towards, but we can't acknowledge that, in, or we can't strive towards them in earnest until we acknowledge the 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 falsehoods that the practice of America has actually um, been and the experience that 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 has been for Black people and for people of color. Mm-hmm. That, that that's the dichotomy of the enlightenment man is that you have these people expounding these ideas while also capitalizing in every way off the slave trade at the time that they're drinking the coffee that makes the ideas a little bit more inspirational right well, it's like, yeah yeah that's uh, that's always been something that's fascinating me to me about the enlightenment uh just being a, a period i'm interested in. i took a course over that as an undergraduate uh but say no no longer even offer that course at tech that was one of krieger's last courses that he taught was uh was the enlightenment but uh, that was always a, a dichotomous uh sort of ideas but what you're saying is like that is we need to say both also like we need to say the, where these ideas came from, like, yeah, here's where they are in America, but let's let's go back and look at how this guy that we keep talking about, what he really thought, right? That's, uh, His ideas became what Thomas Jefferson put on paper, and these ideas, you know, universal and um, noble as they are, um, they are only ideals until they become reality. Like, the work is actually making these ideals reality, and that is the real dichotomy for me, this is something that I think about historically, is the dichotomy between these ideals and the economic system that America is built on. Because these ideals, the economic system is what created the conditions for um, these ideals to be complicated, is what created the conditions for these ideals to be put on paper, but then not activated in practice. The fact that you can profit so much from not holding up these ideals and this capitalist system is what actually the question of America and it gets at the core of America and I think that that's another reason why when you present these ideas to people they are quick to label you communist or to label you uh, Marxist uh, specifically or to label you as anti-American in that uh, economic sense of being you're against the capitalist ideal of America right I'm against the idea of thinking we have it all figured out yeah, right. Like there's better ways to do all the stuff that we talked about today, right? I mean, it, it's 2020. We're, st- you know, just since being strapped to only writing things on paper to this podcast, right, it is a whole other realm uh, for us to be entering into. So, 
I didn't mean to throw this off topic, man. My uh, bad. No. I was just... Well, like, 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 you know, this guy's cats bouncing around here. This is an organic <laughs> conversation with. I'd say, I'd say we've done better than like me trying to talk to three of my friends. We would have been like way more all over the place. It's so been I, historical the whole time. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's been mostly within context with a little bit of cynicism here and there, but find a historian that isn't cynical and well, you haven't found a historian, so. Well, and then <laughs> you find like, I'm searching for answers here and you guys know things that I don't and I can benefit in this conversation from operating under that assumption in every way right it's like oh what and just being real and asking stupid questions i i do that all the time right like i don't have this all figured out like the amount of potential history versus what i know versus what i want to know and the amount of time i have to learn it uh, it, it's i'm I'm just like what's this book he's linda who right i gotta read that later (laughs) so this this is uh good and this is i mean Kind of I already added it on my Audible since, since you held it up a second ago. <laughs> so uh, it's from 2017. It's the second coming of the KKK, uh, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s and the American political tradition, Linda Gordon. And her argument, I think, I haven't finished it. I just, it came in the mail today and I read part of it. Um, her, her argument, I think, is kind of on, on point with something Eric said um, at some point earlier, um, you know, about how these um, sort of traditions, like the tr- tradition of the first KK, you know how they how they 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 linger and they in this in his spherical analogy that he made how you know you, you, they don't really ever go away, and her you know kind of her assertion to this point anyway, is that, you know this the the second KKK took uh, existing um, existing zeitgeist to use your word uh, in America that was you know racist or anti-Jew or anti-Catholic or anti-immigrant, and the second KKK was able to exist because it had that platform to leap from. And the second clan is only, is only around for about seven years. It's, it's dead by about 1927, but it, it lasted long enough and it entrenched those ideas long enough to you know, give them like a steroid shot and push them forward. And then the ideas that they, that they were able to, to co-opt to exist, they are able to give to future generations to in turn use again. So, you know, the idea of sort of, you know, the white Protestant besieged mentality, you know, our culture is under attack always, our religion is under attack, our economic system is under attack always. Um, the, these sort of, these sort of almost paranoias, you know, paranoias that you see come up with, again, with McCarthy or with Nixon in the early 1950s. Uh, the paranoia that LBJ had, that he would lose the election to Goldwater, Goldwater because Republicans were kept telling everybody he was weak on communism and therefore he was allowing this, you know, uh, besieged thing to become a reality. Um, you know, Reagan era stuff, all of these same ideas that have persisted, her general assertion is that the KKK for that seven year flash in the pan in the 1920s was able to just push them forward without them dying off in the American uh, tradition. If you look at um, a book by Ken Barnes at UCA, um, he talks about anti-Catholicism um, in Arkansas, and you know, he has a, a chapter or two on the on the Klan in there. But you know, in his you know, in his work, you know, the anti-Catholicism nationwide doesn't really evaporate in any meaningful way until Kennedy's election in 1960. You know, Al Smith in the 1920s took the brunt. Uh, you know, even being called the Antichrist at one point. You know, it's JFK who was able to kind of overcome. Um, 
talk about immigration. Uh, I, I have accidentally got into immigration history by doing what I do with the Cold War. The KKK had a massive impact on our immigration system. In the 1920s, there's already this idea about returning to normalcy. There's already the idea about curbing immigration, particularly from you know, the socialist nations, right? So in 1924, you get the, uh, the Johnson-Reed Act, right? Johnson-Reed Act massively curbs immigration. It uses data from the 1890 census to create quotas, which means if Chinese or Japanese, no, even there's already a snowball's chance in hell you're coming anyway, but now that's a no. If you're Italian, which is Catholic, that's a no for the most part. German, for the most part, a no. Um, if you are anything but Northern or Western European, you're not coming. 1924, now that lasts until, in various iterations, that lasts until 1965. Well, in Johnson-Reed Act, Johnson was from the state of Washington. He was a known Klansman and was supported by the Klan. The Klan passed that bill to curb our immigration, to, to latch on to this idea. You know, I, I've used this in, in, in classes a couple of times, and my students are always too young to get it. But, you know, early 2000s, maybe South Park, they took our gerbs, they took our jobs. You know, they, they ingrained that. My, my students always look at me like I have three heads. They have no idea what in the hell I'm talking about. I actually South Park did the same reference in my class last semester and was like, and a student got it. And it was a 19 year old girl with blue hair. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so, but the, but the clan, the clan helps ingrain that. And, you know, the idea of the, of the immigrants taking our jobs wasn't new. You know, I think one of the interesting ironies about early, uh, you know, post civil war labor history is that the Chinese Exclusion Act is a part is in part a product of Irish immigrants freaking out the Chinese are taking their jobs. Like how the hell did that work out? But it did. But the Klan helps help solidify that in a national way. You know, um, they had a massive impact. Um, the Nazis, of course, come after, but the amount of ideology that the Nazis and the second iteration of the Klan shared is, I mean, they're almost mirror images with one startling exception. You know, the Nazis were into, you know, total control. They've got, you know, crystal knocked. They're killing all their political opposition. The Klan, because they understood that white Protestants were still the majority, the Klan was happy to work through democratic politics. They didn't have to, they didn't have to take Hitler's route. But beyond that, the Nazis end up sharing much of the ideology. And while the Klan is at the height of its power in 1925, is while Hitler is scribbling down Mein Kampf. And they're making the same the same anti-Jewish arguments. Um, you know, their, their impact was just phenomenal. Um, and I've totally lost my train of thought. But the second clan, Not. full circle, full circle put that star on our flag. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna throw in. I don't think it's a I, I think that that's an important uh, an important an important point to understand when we talk about the evolution of um, um, how the Klan's ideology became actual tangible power. Um, and when you talk, I was going to, when you were talking, Will, I was thinking about the Chinese Exclusion Act myself. And I was going to say that it's, in my mind, it's no coincidence that within five years of the end of Reconstruction, you saw the beginnings of immigration control in the form of 
the Chinese Exclusion Act under that same premise that these people were taking economic opportunities away from white people. And that same idea is literally the, the basis of the redemption, that any black progress, any progress by people beyond the WASP, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, was a threat towards uh, the, their individual freedom and, and their individual progress. So much so to where it even, I think that supports the point that was made about how these clans people did use democratic policies and did infiltrate these systems to begin to make some of these decisions about policy and how immigration uh, happens in this country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Marie. It's exactly what you said earlier, Eric, about it being systemic. The Klan only needs to come out in public long enough to infiltrate the system because they want to work through the democratic norms. They don't want to overtake the system. They want to become part of the system. And that's why they only last seven, the, the second iteration last seven years, but their policies last a generation yeah. or more. Their educational policies, their anti-parochial school policies, their textbook policies. You know, what, what killed off the second Klan in Arkansas was that 1925, the Democratic Party uh, instituted a rule that said we will no longer accept candidates that have been vetted by a pre-primary because the Klan right. was using pre-primaries to right. stack the primaries and then take the election. What kills it off nationally in 1927, Indiana, which had the biggest, and, and I need to emphasize this, I think, to anybody who might uh, have not shut me up yet and turned me off, the second Klan was in all 48 states. It was not, this is not a Southern versus Northern morality play. They were everywhere. Indiana had the biggest contingency. Fast forward uh, a, a few decades and, you know, um, uh, George Wallace in the primary takes what Michigan, you know, in his primary running on, running on, you know, uh, these from these same sort of ideas in the 1960s. But the second clan, anywhere from four to six million members nationwide, they're in Oregon, they're in Washington, as in, you know, the Johnson Reed Act, they're in Indiana. Um, what kills them off actually is a, you know, really, you know, interesting, um, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. Their entire platform is respecting and protecting the sexuality of white women. Their entire platform is don't get drunk. One of the most powerful members of the KKK nationwide in Indiana, he is convicted of repeatedly raping, after repeatedly biting all over her body, um, by the way, uh, his secretary. She then, because, because, uh, you know, she, she, because she's been raped, she's no longer pure, right? So she believes white society is no longer going to accept me. So she commits suicide. He gets convicted for second degree murder because she, because she committed suicide, which is a really interesting point made by Linda Gordon. He did not make her commit suicide, but because he was responsible for ruining her purity, he was responsible for her death. So the Klan crumbles nationwide because they no longer have this morality based platform to stand on. Your most powerful figure has raped a woman and she has killed herself because of it. Um, he was a bizarre character. He liked to bite women. He bit her all over the place. Apparently she was like bleeding profusely from all of his bites. Um, what is the name of the serial killer uh, from the 18, he was killed around 1990 in Florida. Um, oh, 
They just did a thing on him on Netflix. I just had a movie about him. Zac Efron played him. Uh, Somebody help me. I know what movie you're talking about. Hold on. Anyway, the Indiana KKK guy, very reminiscent with the biting of the serial killer. Bundy. His name, like, Bundy, Ted Bundy, yeah. Um, very Bundy-esque. So the, so, the clan, so the clan collapses, but to Marie's point, um, that was a really weird, like, uh, sort of bubble there, you know, anyway. But to Marie's point, um, they, didn't, they didn't have to actually prove their morality. They didn't actually have to exist all that long. In the time they had, they embedded their ideology into our systems. And again, their, immigra their immigration policy lasted until at least 1965 on paper. Now, that's not to say subconsciously it didn't continue on. And then who's to say you know, what the impact that sort of ideology had on people that came after, like McCarthy and Nixon and Goldwater, Reagan, and so on and, and, and on. Um, you know, I don't want to be too current. I don't, I, I don't want to do too, too, too much current event. But, you know, again, uh, listening to Trump's inauguration speech, some of this comes out in that speech, this very dark, weird, besieged, uh, you know, morality and jobs, which are somehow tied together always, are at stake. And this was the KKK's platform in the 1920s. Uh, you know, too, so like this is, this is, uh, and it's kind of, kind of weird to tie all this back in together, but like, how much do we keep bringing up sexual assault? And that's also something that's at the narrative right now, right? And I'm not lessening the, any, any movement that's going on right now with uh, Me Too or anything, um, but is that be is that do you guys think that that could be a new way to discredit or is that just a a recurrent theme because like right now it's like i I made, I made the joke earlier or it's not even a joke it's a reality it's like oh well okay this guy was shot but was he a sex offender and was he reaching for a gun and we think he was a marxist like it's it's like those are the three things you vet people against and it's like Oh uh, well, he was probably a sexual deviant, but that just keeps coming up, right? right. Is it, is that th this is at the backdrop of whether it's like raping white women or or whatever the narrative is? Like it, there's this weird sexual side to it that we keep bringing up. That's also heavy at the narrative here about like this is something like the Trump administration. Like they, oh, you know what? They're gonna eradicate sex offenders. Right, this is all this Epstein stuff. Like this is a a very thing I'm seeing that the Trump administration is touting and being like, look how many sex offenders Donald Trump is responsible for taking down. Right, like you guys think there's any like I've just repeatedly thought about that. Is it like is it less in an era where we're we have people like Bernie Sanders and in his ideas? Is it less of a dig to say somebody is a, a Marxist or? Is that more of a, a norm? And it's like, we have to discredit and we have to go to the straight to the sexualized side of things, right? Because like, I, I'm seeing that like in some of these shootings and things, it's like, well, hey, that guy was a sex offender or that guy. And I don't know, I don't know if they were or not. I just, it's daunting to me that it keeps coming up in the narrative of right now of this is this other way we need to see if we can discredit this person and just see if they fit this marker first before we do any, I don't know if that's, if that's making any sense, but like, I keep looking at it and I'm like, is this like, 
Is this a basis for a third red scare, conceptually? I, I, I have, I, I really, I have no educated opinion on this. I would say what stands out to me, so I know who you're talking about, that one of the, one of the people in Kenosha that was killed by the white kid with a gun is or allegedly is or was, I guess, a sex offender. I have no idea if that's true. Uh, it seems to me that if we can draw a parallel or if that if we can find a, a, a common theme is that being a sex offender seems to mean that you are a candidate for mob violence. That's the only parallel that I see. If you look at all of the lynchings in the late 19th century, early 20th century, all the way up to, you know, at least Emmett Till, I'm sure it goes further. What is the underlying, what, what is the accusation? Sex offender, sex offender. So sex offender seems to mean that you are a candidate for mob justice, right? Um, I think, and again, I, this is just observational. Maybe Marie or Eric have something better here. On, on, on the idea of being a sex offender, I think that um, the narrative has probably changed uh, within the social sphere is that um, while, you know, this kid in Wisconsin shows us that that's still a, a good reason that you can be killed, apparently, um, outside of the justice system, but because of, like, the Me Too movement, I think that there is, like, a legitimate level of moral concern as well now. Like, we're I, not just why, using... like, I don't want to, it's a weird thing to even talk about because I do not want to delegitimize that at all, right? Or delegitimize anything that, that is going on with that. So it's, like, a weird thing to talk about, but, I, like, I, I wasn't even... Uh, referencing the shooter situation, like the the man who was shot seven times in the back, oh, when right, that right, first right. happened, I don't know, I don't know what that man's background is, but that was one of the early articles. They're like, he was reaching for a gun and he's a sex offender. Like, well, I think I think a lot of this is conspiracy theory in this moment. Yeah. I think that this this um, the idea that there's this elite pedophile ring. And then it, it kind of becomes less conspiratorial and you talk, start talking about sex offenders. So I don't think that that even deserves to be addressed at all because it's, it's just crazy. Um, but I think what you, and I may be wrong, I may have misinterpreted what you said, but you're, you kind of alluded to the fact that maybe accusing someone of being a communist isn't enough. So you have to take that other step to say they're a sex offender, right? And I think Will's right that one, it shows, it tells Americans in some kind of subconscious way that if someone's accused of being a sex offender, then they can, um, they can be lynched or you can be subject to this mob violence and it's justified. It's also an underlying, um, it's white supremacy. I mean, that's, you need to protect the white race because black men are going to rape white women. That's the lost cause argument. That's the argument made in Birth of a Nation um, that justifies the birth of the second clan. And I do think at some level, it goes back to that again and again, this idea that um, sex offenders are somehow um, part of this, this narrative or, or the sexual deviance is part of this narrative to end the white race in some way. So I think it's absolutely a dog whistle to white supremacists. Uh, but I think part of it is conspiratorial and that's just a whole... Well, that, yeah, the QAnon, like, I, I'm just honestly trying to talk through, like, all the white noise that I'm picking up yeah. right now in this in this zeitgeist of, like, th this administration. Because, I mean, this is something I was, like, in 2016, I was, like, 
so Donald Trump is taking out all the pedophiles. That's what I'm seeing here. Like, as soon as he was in office, I started seeing articles pop up about, like, we have a problem with pedophiles running everything. Like, that's in 2016. That uh, there was these two articles I was pulling up all the time back when he was first elected, like 407 pedophiles. But how many articles have you seen like that since and recently? So like, I'm just like looking at that against the backdrop of everything else we're kind of talking about is like, how does that fit? Is this being like used as a platform in some way by this administration? I mean, I would say just looking at it objectively, yes, like it is all the way back from the election, something that they are pushing. So it's, it's been a thread I've been trying to follow without getting conspiratorial. I was telling one of my class earlier, I'm like, the thing, I used to be really conspiratorial, but then I was like, oh, I can't believe these other five conspiracies to believe this one. Right. That's how I explain it to people. It's like, I, I can't believe these other things just so I can believe this. Right. Like, too much. Right. So. Anyway. I think that well, using the idea of being a sex offender to justify mob violence or violence by the police actually undermines legitimate, like, Me Too accusations. Like, if you can just call someone a sex offender and it justifies this violence, then it takes away from the women who actually have been the victim of this sexual violence and need that platform. So I don't think it's, I mean, yeah. It's, well, and look how this, just, it's become a, a thing on both sides of this election. You and I've talked previously. It's like what, not getting into any, anything about other than the fact that it's like people have accused both candidates of, of everything we're talking about. True, false, whatever. We'll figure it out eventually, maybe. I don't know. But it's like that is, that is at the backdrop. Uh, oh, Biden, he may, you know, he may have done these things. We're going to tell you about it. And Trump, he definitely, you know, we got him on camera or on uh, audio saying that he did this. And it's like, but then you, the sides is saying, oh, well, you know, but he arrests 407 of these people so we can get over that. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thread that, that I, I, I mean, I was talking with just brainstorm with my wife about this, who has a, uh, an undergraduate in history. We just own our business together. But it's like, we're talking about to kill a mockingbird. And it's like how how important of a thread that is of the oh the rape and white women's narrative, and it's like has that been repurposed and weaponized in in different ways? Is basically what I'm just just brainstorming, but it's been something that I just keep thinking about, and I've thought about a few times since we've been talking today. I think Eric well, tried to offer that. Um, now, yeah, I was just gonna offer. As far as the historical context, I would agree that um, the sexual assault has been weaponized, especially against um, Black people. But I think it's important to understand that what you uh, are referencing um, about the the use of sexual assault as a method to discredit um, highlights an important aspect of even historical context for that conversation. Um, people like Ida B. Wells were important because it highlighted um, the the relationship between these lynchings and these um, and these accusations of rape, but Ida B. Wells was the first black person, the first person to ever articulate that these lynchings have the the surface veneer of sexual assault of a, of a direct of merely a relationship to sexual assault, but in actuality, 
lynchings and this accusation about sexual assault was used as a as a method of control and a method of power um the the people that ida b wells wrote about who were lynched in her book southern horrors were her friends uh three of her friends who owned a, a grocery store they were black men who owned a grocery store in memphis and they were very very successful and these men were lynched um not because of an accusation of rape, but because they were economically successful and that their progress was a threat to white supremacy. And so what you're saying is important because it highlights the weaponization of sexual assault accusations, even though there are vastly different motives for every different type of extra legal violence that occurs. It could simply be you want this person eliminated as an economic threat. If you own a grocery store, and these black people are selling, get more you know, clients than you or selling more product than you, especially as a white person, that is a direct threat to white, to your white supremacy, but it's also a direct threat to you economically. And so these accusations could easily be levied against somebody for an ulterior motive, right? And then um, I was also gonna offer that when we talk about like the systemic nature of these problems, whether it's um, uh, pedophilia or whether we're talking about uh, waste, racism and white supremacy. When, when you say the, the Ku Klux Klan went away in 1927 or in the late 1920s, it's important to remember that these people didn't die, right? They didn't fall off the face of the earth. They went about their day-to-day -day lives and infiltrated American society at every single level, taking these ideological um, um, strong, uh, these ideological points that they held because of their belief in and uh, commitment to the Klan and to ideas of white supremacy with them and infiltrated these ideas into every single American system. Like these millions of people who claimed Klan membership didn't just all of a sudden die at the end of the 1920s. And so these ideas were allowed to perpetuate because the people were perpetuating the ideas. They didn't just go away. They continued to perpetuate these ideas and implement them and codify them into our American systems. Yeah, when I mean, that gets back to what you were, I mean, if I understand you correct, kind of what you're saying with your sphere metaphor, right? Is that it's, you, it does create this, there's this infiltration that's happened. Like when, when you're saying that earlier, there's a, so there's this concept in, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, segue into my other life here for a second, but this concept in Brazilian jiu-jitsu called a barren bolo, right? So like I, I tell everybody, the reason my gym's name is Forza Martial Arts is because of the Portuguese slave trade. And I get all into it in my master's thesis about how, like we said, Japanese people, we don't want you to come here anymore. So they started migrating to Brazil and we get Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but this concept of like, you know, if you had a quarter and you, and you flicked it and it spun on a table, right? This concept of a barren bolo is actually if I did that with a ball, right? It's not like a spinning top. It's not like when you flick a quarter across the table and it's spinning, it's actually this, right? This sort of spinning motion. And it's like, that is the, that's how I see the zeitgeist is, right? Is it's like you were saying like history is more of a sphere or even that like it's I've thought about that several times it's like it's this it's like a big spinning ball going through space it's everywhere all the time and it definitely it, 
gets infiltrated with these ideas and these people don't just go away. That is now in the, in the zeitgeist. It is now in the sphere. It has now become a part of the narrative and, and we have to grapple with what that means. No pun intended with the grappling remark. Anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I wasn't um, suggesting that the Klan, you know, stopped existing in 1927 ideologically, that, but that its national unity was gone in 1927. And there were attempts to recreate, um, you know, other similar groups that never got off the ground. But yeah, no, they had achieved their goal. Um, and right, I mean, they didn't, they didn't just drop off the face of the earth. They kept going and kept doing. Um, the, the, the goal of that, of that version of the Klan at one point was to be a political party, uh, which obviously didn't work out for them. Um, so they ceased to exist as a unified you know, thing. But yeah, uh, you know, to Eric's point, they didn't just go away. They, they left us with your, with your spear. What? They may have, may have became your neighbor. Yeah, they very well, they very well could have been. Or your police chief. Or your, or your, or your administrator at the, at the university. Yeah. Or your mayor. Yeah. Or your pastor. Well, that's, that's important. It's like, uh, like when I talk to, like, hey, like I trained cops at my gym for free. Anybody that's a civil servant can train at my gym for free, right? So it's like, my way of giving back, but it's like uh, very few people take advantage of that. And you you have to like, when I have conversations with like one of the chiefs trains here, it's like with him, I'm like, so yeah, some cops are are definitely racist. And and, and he even is, is has a, maybe a hard time admitting that. I'm like, well, could we, could we agree that a certain percentage of people on the job are racist like it, it, it's a no it's a no-brainer for me right it's like if it's people patrolling it's your chief and it's like if it's your chief it's maybe your mayor right it's like but just how that like are you mayor chief of police officers how that flows uh being unelected but that's been something that's fascinated me it's like nobody even wants to admit that these people are institutionally there right there are racist people there are institutions, racist people are in the institutions, like a certain percentage. I mean, it's, per but uh, you say that in that same way and people are like, no, not our institutions. No, not around here. The place that's got a rich history associated with what we're talking about. No. Joe Stamets. Joe Stamets made that actual comment. Joe Stamets said that he didn't believe that racism was a problem at the University of Arkansas. Or he said he didn't believe that we had a racist institution. And I understand the context in which he was making the statement because he was literally coming from that same perspective that the institution itself isn't 100% racist. But that doesn't, that doesn't discredit the fact that the university itself supports white supremacy in many capacities, right? And it's because of the absence of an alternative presence within these institutions. The institution itself is just an institution, right? It has no moral quantity. It's like fire or anything else, like science. You know, it has no real moral quality. But because the institution itself does not have reflect the diversity of the people that, of the space that it's in, it's allowed to support 
one demographic over another, right? And with 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 that absence of a presence, the entire institution will take on that feel, even if every aspect of the institution isn't 100% racist, if there's an absence of these alternative presences, then the entire institution will take on that, that, that field. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, um, so can I, so Marie, have you been following anything with this, um, this uh, was a, uh, the, the student that was stopped here like I was in a conversation with you talking about this judge's son, like have That's my friend, Andrew. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't know him, but like I've talked with Meredith. I was in a group chat about this. Like um, what's going on with that? Like, can, can anybody in here kind of speak to that? Like I've done some background, like just had a couple conversations, talk with Meredith about it, a friend of Marie and I's, but um, on that note is that, when law enforcement was probed about uh, this issue, they totally seized up about like, no, you're, you know what, you're putting us at risk. The people with the guns that watch you, you're putting us at risk by questioning. And I was just like, really? Like we can't even question uh, this, this stop with this officer who actually has a, a previous incident that has gone awry with, with citizens. It's like, uh, but do you guys know anything about that? That's just another recent event that's going on here in the state, but I mean, it sounds like you do. Uh, I'm not familiar with the details of Andrew's case. I know Andrew, I haven't followed that case because of the nature of the case and because it's um, to me personally reflective of the, the larger systemic problem. Like Andrew's case is not unique. You know what I mean? Andrew's case is unfortunate, but Andrew's case is no, by no means unique. And I believe that uh, the, the point that you're making about scrutiny um, further highlights the, the systemic nature of the conversation about power, that whenever a question is presented about the, the practices or the policies that is taken as a direct threat, as opposed to um, a, an evolving working condition right? The, the police themselves should continuously evolve in how they practice and how they operate, but that's not the goal. If the goal is for them to maintain power, then any questioning will be taken as a direct threat. Right, and it didn't help the situation that this police officer had this huge, huge prior incident in Dover either, and so I think that part of the seizing up with this issue was that there people are questioning why is he still employed because the incident in Dover was a huge deal. I mean, because Dover's a community of 2,000 people, and that was a upstanding member, like family in the community that he tased violently, the mother and the son. And so I think that people just assumed that when those things happen, those cops don't become, they're no longer police officers. They and go work at the adjacent town many yes. times. Yes. And like, you know, for my role is like, I'm sitting over here being like, hey, will you guys come train at my gym for free so you won't shoot people as much? And they're like, no, we don't have time for that. Like, like quite literally, like, we don't have time to learn how to not kill people. Like, that is the literal response. It's like, it's free for you and your whole family. You can just come here, right? Because, like, the, the many uh, police departments across the U.S., many are going to a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a use of force model. 
of like, hey, you don't have to shoot people if you just know how to control them and you can keep your wits about you. You don't have to shoot them in the back six additional times. Like, uh, who was it that was making the point? It's like, what, what purpose is bullets two through seven serve in that, in that scenario? You know, it's like we're, we're, we can do things that are better uh, in terms of just uh, training our people to not shoot people in police custody without them ever even being charged of a crime or seeing the inside of a court of law like that it just it bothers me that we can't even get like around here we can't even get the narrative in it's like yes police need better training just in general all all other things we talked about today aside uh national narrative you look at there's no need like i'm gonna tell you guys right now like i never need to put my knee on somebody's neck like that it just does not it's not required it, there's so many better ways to do that without inducing panic in somebody it's like i mean there's just better ways to do it right and like i can speak on that and it's like but like many things we don't want to hear about this better way to do it right it's it's not anything we want to take into account so that's my two cents on uh the systemic issues is like well they don't even admit that there's a problem in training that leads to use of force being an issue. Racial lines are no, right? It's like it, use of force is an issue. And I think we need to start addressing that uh, on a systemic uh, level too. It's like, and, and I, you know, too, we've seen this year, it's like the whole rubber bullets narrative and, and uh, the less lethal methods. It's like how many eyeballs have been lost in 2020 due to these non these rubber bullets and non-lethal methods it's like uh, how about we come up with a whole other way right i'm all for that it's like that's what i see defund the police as it's like let's let's i see it as like refund would be a better way of putting it right re, re, refunding everything it's like they now uh presently this is a sidebar but they train, they send cops that don't train in martial arts to these certification courses with martial artists like myself. Then the non-martial arts cop that got the certification comes back and trains the non-martial artist officers in martial arts techniques. And that's how we spend our tax money, people. Like, don't talk to me about the budget. You spent $18,000 to send a non-martial artist to Texas to train with the martial artist when every school, every town has my gym, you know? It makes no sense. Just outsource it locally. Soapbox. Those, those <laughs> aren't the goals, man. Like, and I box. That's what I. I, I do you go to Straight Right Gym here in Northwest? I do. I box at a Straight Right Gym, uh, Straight Right Boxing and Fitness. Dude, I have the, 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 uh Yeah, I mean, we we got a great relationship with martial arts gyms and with uh, martial artists throughout the state. But the point the point that I'm bringing that up with about is is to your point about these policies the policies and the practices reflect the actual goals and your question about what do bullets two through seven serve they serve the same goal as putting your knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds it's about power it's not a question of subduing these people it's a question of asserting your power to dominate their body and to even take their life right and it's the question of um your ability and the fact that these people aren't arrested your legalized ability to assert your power, even lethally, um, it caught. That's where bullets two through seven come in. That's where your knee putting putting on somebody's neck for that long comes in. Because as you know, as a martial artist, 
you don't need a weapon to do any of the things that police actually do or are or, or tasked to do. You don't need a, a, a lethal weapon to do that. But the lethality is because these people are commissioned by the United States to be judge, jury, and executioner on the site, right? They are given the authority to make these decisions over life and death, especially concerning black and brown bodies. So there is the power aspect of it is the reason that bullets two through seven happen. Man, it is a, I just like it described like this. I know this is kind of a, just another big 2020 narrative backdrop as I wave my mask around in my studio, right? But it's like, this is um, the brutality, the violence. Man, I, I do think that there's, there's got to be a shift in that and in, in how we're doing everything. It's like with law enforcement and training. And I just, I don't know, like ref, defunding the police. That's such a, something that everybody has gotten up in arms about. And I'm like, I just don't want, I, my whole life, I am a law abiding citizen. I own a business and my whole life that I, I can't even imagine being a non-white person. I've been afraid of cops my whole life. I see a cop and I'm like, oh, oh, am I, am I breaking the law? Oh, I, I'm not. I'm a law-abiding citizen. It's good. Okay, we're good here. We're good. Oh, oh my God. Am I going 10 over, under? Am I too slow, too fast? And it's like, I can't, that is me, a law-abiding citizen that says like, Russellville police boxing on the side of his car. I literally don't even worry about getting pulled up around here. Everybody knows me, I train the cops for free, but it's still like, I'm like, oh, ooh. So I can't imagine that being extrapolated to people who live on the margins of the law or, or just like, you, you don't look like uh, Brian, so, and you're not doing the things that Brian's doing in your community, so you're, you're likely, way much more likely to get pulled over, right? Uh, you're, you're not from around here, right? Oh, you're just passing through. We don't like people who aren't from around. That kind of seemed like the narrative of, of this law student that was pulled over. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, uh, we don't like outsiders. You need to take a U-Haul and move on down the road. Like that's just, just reading the reports is like, is that really the message we want to send to fellow Arkansans with this institution of law enforcement? Or is that reinforcing everything we've talked about, right? So, yeah. So we have talked about a lot, and we did start out to talk about the flag. Let's bring it back to the flag, all right? So I, uh, I'm hungry, all right? So <laughs> Friday. I want to point out a couple of things. So um, Greg Letting, a state senator who has, he'll, he's never going to listen to this. He's been not useful whatsoever. He only replied to my email because, um, Marie like hounded him like crazy on Twitter. It was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. I mean, she was like, it was, it was like Twitter bullying. I would, but, but like, but, but like, that nice wasn't mean. Yeah, very yeah, nice Twitter impressive. bullying. Uh, other than he's pretty useless, and he kind of he kind of talks around you a lot. And um, from talking to other people around here, um, I get that impression from a lot of people, you know, about him. Um, so if he ever does listen to this, although that he won't. Um, you should maybe be a little, you know, less the way that you are. Anyway, 
he is um i'm not in his district so he doesn't give a shit what i think but um he he has occasionally tweeted about the flag off and on uh, over over the summer since since the thing with mississippi started back in june so mississippi changed their their flag and um which kind of irritates me because i'll tweet back at him and be like hey dude let's talk about this and then it's just like you know uh, butterflies but whatever uh he randomly tweeted something to the effect of like you know if you could start completely over with the arkansas flag what would you do and a couple of people actually submitted designs on Twitter that they mocked up real quick that looked kind of good, um, uh, which isn't all that helpful in the moment, but uh, I, I tweeted a, a few of them and maybe they'll kind of, uh, you know, tweet back and we can maybe have a conversation about, about, about this. You know, this needs to be a statewide conversation, obviously. And if, and if he's doing nothing else by kind of hijacking um, the narrative, he's being, you know, inadvertently helpful. But to kind of to, to try to come kind of full circle you guys were having like an intense conversation um sorry about, about the law enforcement tirade in the martial arts you know, about you know systemic racism institutionalized racism and all of these things and the, these are concepts that a lot of people have a hard time you know getting their mind around you know eric addressed this with the, with the steinman with the steinman statement for example um and you know and he said something very interesting too i think that you know, uh, an institution has no soul, right? An institution is comprised of the people that, that make it up. It's comprised of the people that, that, are, that, that control it. Because this is, again, to Eric's point, this is a conversation about power, right? So this idea of institutionalized racism, maybe I'm wrong, follow me here. You don't, you, you know, if you don't want to, you know, believe that it exists, if you don't want to look at universities or police departments or whatever, full circle. Look at the Arkansas state flag. We have a star on our flag, a flag according to the Arkansas State Secretary, uh, to the Arkansas Secretary of State's website, a flag that represents all of us is, is what they're, you should read the website by the way, it's totally tone deaf, it's hilarious. But according to the Arkansas Secretary of State, this flag stands for all Arkansans. It cannot stand, fly, wave, dangle, or anything else for all Arkansans because of that star. That star was placed there by, by an organization, the second iteration of the Klan, that hated all four of us, that hated every Catholic in this state, every Jew in this state, every immigrant in this state, that insulted every Native American in this state by claiming that they, the Klan, were the Native Americans. And they put a star on our flag that in turn commemorates an entity that existed for no other reason than to preserve slavery, that wrote into the state constitution that the state assembly could never abolish slavery. The flag, the flag is not for all of us. That flag is a symbol of what happens when an institution, in Eric's words, a soulless entity, is taken over by people that are racist and commemorate that racism in a way that impacts everybody underneath that institution. And in this regard, that institution is the state, it is the flag. There you have it. That's so, what, so what's the future of the flag? In, in, in you three historians' minds, what 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 is what is the most uh considerate compromise moving forward because it kind of seems like that's the way to go is is 
sort of a middle ground? Like what is the planned uh, change in symbolism that you guys have in mind? The, the compromise is to accept Charles Blake's bill. Charles Blake is an interesting position in that he was the former representative from Pulaski County. The man that put the star on the flag was the representative from Pulaski County. That is a, a nice way for history to uh, maybe not correct itself, but to nullify its own actions. That is the compromise. Ideally, because you know symbolism is very important and people say, oh, well, that's just a statue. That's just a plaque. It's just a road name. It's just a bridge. If it's just that, then why do you cling to it so hard? Symbolism is, is not nothing. Symbolism is everything. So the ultimate goal, the preferred goal would be a redesign because we need the symbolism of the flag coming down the pole and a flag that looks differently going up the pole. So the compromise is Charles Blake. The ideal is you redesign it. Okay. Yeah. Which I'm much more for like a complete redesign myself, right? Like I've seen like, it seems like everybody uh, well, I'm not, not everybody, but it seems like there is a big narrative of like, let's change the symbols of what each star stands for. But it's like, I'm way more of the camp of a redesign. Do you think that's what will happen? That depends, I think, just my opinion, is it that depends largely on how no, the November 3rd election goes. If, um, you know, if, if Trump wins re-election, then I think the people that really cling to these certain narratives, the lost cause, um, are going to double down. Somehow a man from New York has made the lost cause our national heritage. I don't know how that happened, but it did. Um, I think they double down. And, and I think people in the Arkansas Assembly double down that are already on that train of thought. Um, if he loses, and if some of them lose, and the remainders have to have kind of a coming to Jesus moment where they sort of reevaluate their priorities and uh, and kind of you know how, how hard they want to cling to these things then maybe we can get more maybe we can redesign it um but I, but i think we're kind of at a, at a point right now where we kind of have to wait and see you know the um the arkansas state legislator no matter who wins who's no matter who's sitting in whatever seat is going to face some um some demons in january the governor himself is is putting every drop of political capital that he has into a hate crime bill uh, they're going to have to face that. They're going to have to. Re they're going to have to to talk about what that means and why it's necessary and what those things are, are meant for. Um, there are other legislators that want to talk about things like reform. They're going to have to talk about the underlying issue of reform. You know, uh, talk about the extreme discrepancy between who is imprisoned and who is not, and why they are imprisoned and why they are not. Uh, it's going to be very much a coming to Jesus moment in January, February, March for the assembly as it is. Um, so we'll just have to see where they go, but it, it, you know, just because you tack the word progress onto something does not mean that it's good. Not all progress is good. The Nazis thought they were progressive. Okay. But change comes and change is going to come and no matter, and, and look, and I don't want to participate in the culture war. I don't think that's particularly productive, but this is this is a, a culture war at the moment. It's a renewed culture war. And what history teaches us is that the reactionary side does not win. They might linger. They might create narratives that make it look like they won that last for a while. 
but they never actually win. It might be slow and it might be rough, but this will, this change will happen. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys want to go ahead and wrap it up on that note? I know we've yeah. been all over the place, but uh, I, I I grew from today's conversation. Hopefully it was beneficial for you guys too, who I perceived to be way smarter than myself. But I know a little bit about a little bit. <laughs> I, I know more about jujitsu than history, sadly. It feels like every time I talk to another historian. So, um, you know, it, it has been super humbling getting to sit down and talk with you guys. Hopefully it won't be the last time. Yeah, Hopefully for not. sure. Thanks Thank you. For the, uh, Thank you, Brian. Yeah, thanks for the platform and all the, all of the things. Hey, yeah, well, uh, again, I really uh, would be open. I, I'm going to have Marie on again, uh, but I would be down to just do an individual podcast with any of you. So uh, I'll, I'll link up with y'all on the other side of this. Yeah, um, I would be happy to talk to you about uh, the fact that Jimmy Carter being a human rights guy first is another historical myth. <laughs> That's a podcast That's cool. right there. Hell yeah. Yeah, I talk with you too, man. Um, I do research about the uh, talk about systemic racism. <laughs> I do research about the 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 interstate system and how it um, was used to achieve uh, various goals of white supremacy. And so, yeah, I, I don't mind talking with you at any time. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll do it. I'm just like like been in a couple. Of, I just moved to this new studio, so I haven't been doing a ton of podcasts. I'm getting like. Uh, just got my 65 inch screen hung up here on my right. Like I've been getting moved into my new gym and the semester's off and there's COVID and, but the ball is back rolling. This is like my first podcast of this semester. Really. Um, I did have a tiny desk performance. I did. Uh, so you guys can look for that. I've, I'm doing a live band in, in here in the studio once a month It's a really big studio. And, um, so that, that'll be something. Uh, Ryan Harmon is coming on in September. He was on American Idol from Arkansas. You guys uh, look him up. He's got like tons of views. Uh, but so like I'm, I just spin this podcast in a ton of different directions. So I'll definitely uh, look forward to having you guys back on. Cool. Thank you. All right. Be careful All right. tomorrow. All right. Yes. Yes, I will. We'll see you later. Bye. Y'all right, have a good one. You see too. Ya.